Welcome back to Half the Battle. I'm your host as always, Daniel Levy, and joining me on this very special UFC 195 edition of Half the Battle is the MMA Analyst of the Year, Robin Black. Robin, welcome back to the show, man. Thanks, man. It's going to be fun to just hang out. I got uh, a Caesar. It's a Canadian classic. And, uh, and yeah, we'll hang out, chat some fights, man. There's some crazy ones coming up. And with Christmas and everything, it's kind of like, you know, the whole world talked about Conor McGregor. And then, you know, they were thinking about Fedor and stuff. And then, you know, media shut down for a bit. So nobody's had as much t time to talk about this one. And it's a killer card. It absolutely is a killer card. And it's funny you bring up Fedor because, you know, I, I, I saw his opponent. You know, I just saw the name. I was like, oh, they're feeding him some can. But then I looked into it. And this guy actually knocked out Sergey Karitanov. So, you know, it was a kickboxing tournament. MMA is a completely different sport. Fedor hasn't fought in three years. So, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in that one, right? Yeah. I mean, Fedor, is he Fedor? You know what I mean? Like, once you become past a certain age and you take time off, it's not like a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old taking time off. Uh, you know, it's not even like Dominic Cruz getting time off to, due to injury and he's still deeply focused in the sport. We don't know what Fedor's been doing or where he's been or what's been going on, but we do know that the timing on his right hand has always been insane and the power on that well-timed right hand has always been insane. And it's very hard for you to stop him from putting that powerful, well-timed right hand on your chin. So if he can still do that, he's going to look good. But it's like, I think like six or seven in the morning, North American time on Spike TV, but I'll, I'll get up and watch it. Right. And another thing that you and I can agree on is that power is the last thing to go. So despite the fact that he's getting up there in age and, you know, probably declining a bit, well, obviously declining a bit, the power's still there, man. So you never know. He could knock out the 28 year old six foot five Jai Deep sign. Yeah. Like power is uh, sort of generated in different ways but it seems like the guys who have it young have it old because it kind of comes naturally whether their body links up in such a way that the hip moves in a way that generates power or they're just there's more spring in their torso it's just it's it seems to be about a fluidity in the generation of that power rather than some type of musculature and if you have that yeah, you have that, you know, will you get a little older? Yeah, but your body's still going to do that thing that made it special. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, I've never kind of been a Fedor guy. I used to troll a little bit and say that Fedor wasn't the greatest. And I literally, for real, I'm not, not shitting you. Like I got death threats by email. Oh, like, I got threatened to slit, literally slit my throat because I said <laughs> Fedor wasn't the greatest. Yeah, I'm not surprised one bit. And it's funny you bring that up because, you know, I used to say the same things. But back when I was saying it, you know, I didn't have half the battle. I didn't have best fight picks. I didn't have a platform for people to really hear me. So I just spoke to my friends about it. But now that I do have a platform, I was saying things like Conor McGregor will defeat the great Jose Aldo. And I got similar threats, dude. People were telling me that I was fucking delusional, that I was a dumb fanboy. And, you know, you're probably right. Maybe I am a little bit of a fanboy. But, uh, hey, 13 seconds, can't deny that, can you? No, you can't. Um, and uh, you could run that fight a lot of different times. Maybe he doesn't land that punch. But he, everything was created. The world was created in which he was going to win that fight. You know, Aldo uh, hadn't been knocking guys up for a long time. He's been playing his a game very smartly. And when you come out with your eyes closed and your teeth gritted, you know, throwing a right hand to close distance, your heart rate is elevated, you're emotional, 
And all of those things, whether it got him knocked out in 13 seconds or it got him beat up in round three, four, and five, those things were the thing that were created over the, you know, 10 months leading up to that. Uh, pretty spectacular, though. Conor McGregor, you know, the fact that people will insult you for being right, they'll insult you in advance, they'll insult you after, just means people are passionate about him. He has that unique ability to make people love him and hate him and, and uh, draw people in. I mean... You're obsessed with fighting. I'm obsessed with fighting. We want lots more people to be, or at least spend part of their life consuming fighting because we think it's pretty special. Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey, these people, as much as people love to hate them, that's good too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what makes the sport so damn great because, you know, unlike team sports where you just have your team and, you know, if your team loses, you don't, you don't, you don't, uh, you know, go to the other ship and start becoming a fan of the other team. You stick by your team. But with MMA, there's multiple fighters in each weight class. And you can be fans of uh, multiple guys. And, you know, Conor McGregor, not just uh, inside the ring with his fighting ability, but outside the ring. You don't see many fighters going on, you know, uh, Jimmy Kimmel the week of the fight and doing the things that he's doing, bring the notoriety he's bringing to the UFC and the sport of MMA. So I'm just stoked that we finally have an athlete on that level. Yeah, and it seems like he is doing things in a different way and he's fighting in a different way and he's training in a different way and most importantly, he's thinking in a different way. And, you know, that's kind of what happens in anything. It goes the same for a long time. It just gets a little better and a little more refined and the technique is just adjusted just a little bit more and then it gets to kind of its perfection. And then what has to happen is something new comes along and makes that obsolete. And that's what he seems like he's trying to do. Time will tell if that's what happens. But right this minute, you had a guy who was the best in the world at the combination of Muay Thai and wrestling and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, who put it together in the old way. And he got eliminated in 13 seconds by a guy who says he's doing it a new way. So, I mean, at least at this point, December 12, 2015, he was right. Now... Uh, July 15th, 2016, or February of 2017, that's when we'll see w whether he really is a, an, entire new, um, an entire new species or whether he was kind of an evolutionary, you know, blip. But I think he's moving because he's so driven to learn and constantly improve and search for new answers. I think he's leading a change in fighting. Absolutely. And I'm actually really glad you brought that up because, you know, one thing that I've paid a lot of attention to is how quickly the sport evolves. You know, back in the day when I first became a fan, you know, I was under the impression that certain guys were invincible. For example, Anderson the Spider Silva. I was in attendance when uh, Chris Weidman defeated him the first time. And, you know, I was like, oh, Anderson's going to go out there. You know, he's going to put his hands down. He's going to knock him out. And while Anderson was taunting him, you know, we were all like, yes, it's working. And then, uh, you know, Chris Weidman does this thing and knocks him out. And it was a big learning lesson for me that no one is invincible and the sport is consistently evolving. You look at Ronda Rousey. I also thought, now I know you're you're one of the only people on planet Earth that predicted that, that upset. But as far as I'm concerned, I thought that Ronda Rousey was going to retire undefeated. Now in Jose, in Jose Aldo's case, back when he uh, debuted in the WEC, you know, the first time I was exposed to him was a little bit after his debut. It was when he knocked out Cub Swanson in about eight seconds. I was like, who the hell is this guy? No one's going to touch this guy. Now, now in this specific case, I'm like, no one's going to touch McGregor. But in a year from now, there might be another guy that we haven't even heard of yet that takes things to a whole new level. 
Yeah, I agree. And this conversation that we're having is happening in other sports and technologies and industries where at a time in human evolution where we're able to just our te the technology of our learning we're able to improve dramatically fast if you were to just pick anything you wanted to learn how to be a cabinet maker or build furniture you it would take you whatever 10 months 20 months 40 months to really get the fundamental tools now you go in the internet and you spend 18 hours a day for 15 or 20 days, you're gonna be really, really good. That's what our technology has taught us. So it's taught our teachers that. It's taught people the ability to learn. Conor McGregor, through mental training, has improved his ability to absorb information. He's, got, he's better in the moment. He's more focused when he's training. So, And this is true of Chris Weidman. This is true of Demetrius Johnson. This would peak. It's not true of Ronda Rousey now because she's going through a depression, her confidence is shaken, that belief, but that ability to learn quickly is the most important thing in fighting. And we're gonna go on, you know, today, hanging out and having a beer, and we're gonna chat about analyzing fights. But the biggest, most important thing today about analyzing fights is what we don't know. And what we don't know is how, what some of these people have improved in the last four months or six months or a year, but didn't show it. So, you know, it's the more you know, the harder it is to do. And if anybody ever says to you, who are you picking for this? Very close, I'm not sure yet. If they question your confidence, they don't understand fight analysis. You need to be confident enough to say, I don't know sometimes, you know? A hundred percent, and I'm very selective on who I'm picking, who I'm betting on, and stuff like that. And just on the topic that we were uh, discussing earlier, you know, GSP, that's a perfect example of a guy who at the time, everyone was like, this is the complete package of a fighter. You know, he's got a great jab, got a good high kick, he's got a very good blast double. But if you go back and you watch his fight, you know, for example, his fight against Josh Koscheck, the second one, he jabbed him for 25 straight minutes. At the time, I was like, wow, that's magnificent. That's magnificent. That was perfection. You know, he busted up his eye with one technique. If you go out there and you try that in 2015 or 2016 and only have a jab, you're going to be in big big trouble. The sport has evolved to a point where you're seeing techniques being used that, you know, would have been laughed at in the past. For example, you watch Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier. The first strike he throws is a front leg hook kick. You know, if I would have told you that dudes would be throwing front leg hook kicks a couple years back, you'd be like, dude, go watch a Bruce Lee movie or something. But now you're seeing these techniques being utilized inside the octagon and who knows what's going to happen in years to come as the sport continues to evolve. For sure, and and at that moment in time, George was the complete package. But it's not that um, George is less of a complete package, it's the definition of the complete package has evolved. So that George, and I've seen fights at sort of less development, or you know, lower levels of development on small shows and stuff, and, and where I, you know, I commentate a lot of those, and, and ring announce, and I used to fight on those small, low-level shows. There are guys who will lose a fight, and you'll look back or, you know, you'll be talking to the coaches and they're like, if that, if our guy threw jabs and low kicks for 15 minutes, he would have been winning all the way through until the other guy made a mistake and then he had to finish them. But instead, our guy did way too much. You need the guy and the, the fighter and the coach and everybody needs to be so good at the fundamentals that they, they can start adding back the fancy things. So as the sport evolved, it was like, we do everything. 
And then it's like, well, shit, this stuff does not work. So we're only doing these things. Okay? We're doing those things. Now we do them so well. Well, what's going on out here? Oh, let's add that back. Oh, wait. At range, nobody's doing anything. Let's add a hook kick at range. Oh, when you come inside close, uh, it, it was always everybody learned how to do the tie clench. Okay, we're going to work with a different type of hand trapping and coming over top. So it was too complicated. And then the answer was to simplify it. And then it became so well simplified that the answer was to make it more complicated. And, and I think this part of the evolution is going to continue. The same way Star Wars uh, number four and Star Wars number seven kind of look the same. The argument is, well, it goes through cycles. You know, the, the, how that universe evolves, it evolves in cycles. And fighting is no different. And, and I mean, you look at America, it's many of the th things of its rise and slowly changing are similar to ancient Rome. I mean, this is what it is to be human and uh, is these things go in cycles. Absolutely. 100%. And I think one of the, you know, turning points for the sport, you know, a lot of people might disagree with me on this one, but I thought when Anthony Pettis did the Showtime kick, that was one of the uh, monumental key moments where people started to realize, hey, you know, we can do these next generation techniques. And speaking of, you know, having a singular approach, I know that, you know, women's MMA and men's MMA, you know, much respect to all the women. They're serious badasses. But the level of competition might not be to the point where the men's MMA is. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because Ronda Rousey, you know, she was looking unbeatable. In my opinion, I, I thought she was going to go down as, you know, the only undefeated champion in UFC history. But she had a very singular approach. She was incredible with her arm bars, but then you uh, put her in a situation where, you know, she can't take her opponent down and, you know, her stand-up actually looked quite rudimentary. So it goes to the point that you're bringing to the table that, you know, you can't just be an expert at one area, but you also can't uh, be a jack of all trades. You have to be excellent everywhere. And that's what we're seeing nowadays. Now I know someone's going to be like, oh, but Conor McGregor doesn't have a wrestling background. <laughs> and I'm going to be like, well, who cares? He's able to keep the fight standing. If he gets taken down, he gets right back up and he knocks you out. Yeah. Uh, um, Holly Holm did won the judo exchange. There was there were moments of the of the clinch, including with all of the prerequisite, you know, uh, details that Ronda needs to get her big throw. But Holly won that exchange. Is Holly the better judoka? No. <laughs> Not at all, but she won that position. She knew, and they had been training her positionally. When in this position, if my hips are lower, I will not get thrown. And she didn't. In fact, she picked her up and threw her on the ground. Who Nobody could have ever seen that. But that's what happened in the early days too. It's like, oh my God, somebody submitted Hoist Gracie or, you know, or whatever example there would be of something like that. Oh my God, somebody knocked out the boxer. Well, yeah, once you introduce everything into it and you win positional exchanges just by doing the right things in the moment, that you don't need to be better uh, judoka. You don't need to be an Olympic gold medalist to beat the Olympic bronze medalist. You just got to win that spot. And that's what Conor McGregor has kind of focused on, be, be mentally in it at all times. He had a wrestler. With, and when people look at him and uh, Chad Mendez, they see that as a weakness of McGregor. I see that as a huge strength. The guy, the wrestler, took him down, got top position, elbowed him, uh, went for his his uh, favorite go-to submission, I believe twice at least, and he still won. 
that says more about him positively than it says him about him negatively. You don't need to. Uh, Chris Weidman wants to win every single position, and so did Luke Rockhold, and that's why that fight was just so crazy. Just like Rory McDonald and Robbie Lawler wanted to win every single exchange, shit like that is going to blow minds every time that happens. Conor McGregor just needs to win the fight. His mentality is, as long as I'm psychologically in a better state than you are, and I'm healthier than you are, and I'm not bothered by what you do, and you're bothered by what I do, I'll get my chance, and I have a left hand that knocks people up. That's a really simple, logical way to build a fighter around a, uh, around a deadly weapon. Perfect example, because a lot of guys, if they would have gotten taken down by that blast double that Chad Mendes possesses, you know, and, and if they were able to get back up to their feet, they might have been like, hey, I need to take a back step. I need to, you know, chill out a little bit because this guy's going to put me on my ass. In Conor McGregor's case, as soon as he got up, he cuts off the ring immediately. He uh, throws every shot in the book yeah. and he knocks him out. And another fight that kind of touches on what we're discussing in my opinion, is Husimar Tokinio Palharis versus Alan Belcher. If you put those two guys in a pure jujitsu match, Tokinio would probably submit him, but MMA, it brings something completely different to the table, and it just uh, complements what you're talking about with Holly Holm out-judoing Ronda in an MMA fight. Yep. The uh, the great equalizer, jiu-jitsu is a beautiful sport, and sports jiu-jitsu is just amazing. Like, it's it's fun, and it's uh, to watch it is fantastic. And so is I commentated at the Pan Am Games, and in Russia I commentated, like, karate, taekwondo, um, uh, Japanese jiu-jitsu, all these different individual martial arts, and I love them. And, and um, uh, sport jiu-jitsu has become its own version, the grappling version. Because once you remove, like in Taekwondo, you kick at distance. If you put bad punches to the head in, a lot of those kicks will never work again. And all the beauty that happens in, in sports jiu-jitsu, as soon as you add punches to the head, it must change. So you get this beautiful competition between this elegant martial art that takes incredible skill, but it's existing in a vacuum. And uh, that's what happens sometimes in fights. Chuck Liddell, and uh, speaking of Chuck Liddell, Joanna Jinjacek, she's Chuck Liddell. You know, you were talking about it kind of being retro. It's Rhonda was Hoist Gracie. She knew things that other people didn't know, and then she beat them. And then along comes Joanna Jinjacek. She sprawls, she gets back up, and she pummels you with straight right hands. She's Chuck Liddell. But uh, Chuck told me uh, at a, uh, a thing, a, a viewing party one time, we were watching Forest and Shogun. And uh, we were talking about kind of different things. And he said the, the most important thing from his era was if you are in a moment where you're wrestling, he's punching you. And if you're in a moment where you've got to deal with the fact that, you oh my God, we're boxing now, well, that's when a guy will take you down. And that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, it, at least it shouldn't, maybe on undercards and stuff. But the fights we're talking about, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear analysis has to evolve because this game is evolving quickly. And what we can't do anymore is we can't just treat it like Dungeons and Dragons and list a bunch of attributes and say who's better at them. Oh, his wrestling is good, but his takedown defense is not good. You know, those <laughs> things are not, you know, this guy's got a great distance game, but in the pocket. Those things are almost none of them are true anymore. And they don't, nothing exists in a vacuum anymore. So Paul Harris, he's got killer leg locks. Punch him in the fucking face. Don't see, you're not going to beat figure out how to beat him or Ryan uh, at uh, at the leg lock game. But if when he commits two hands to your foot, you 
put weight on your heel and punch him in the face. If you work on that, you might win. If you worked on trying to find an answer for every heel hook reversal and inverted heel hook and knee bar and ankle lock he's got, you're fucked. You know, absolutely. You know, the old saying is that if you punch a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in the face, he turns into a brown belt and then a purple belt and then so on and so forth. But that brings me into the first fight we got to talk about, which is Dustin Poirier versus Joseph Duffy, because, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, if, if they stay standing, Duffy's going to win because he has the pro boxing background, which you know, like you're saying, who gives a fuck if he's got a pro boxing background? This isn't a boxing yeah. match. You can knock him in the face. You can take him down. You can elbow him. You can knee him. There's so many things you can do that, you know, just because he's a, you know, quote unquote master at one area doesn't mean that you can't exploit the other areas that he's potentially weak at. Yeah. So before we move on, one thing I wanted to think, uh, remember is while we were doing all that talk about Conor McGregor evolving, when we get to Carlos Condit, He's been doing a lot of the things McGregor's done for a long time. He just hasn't been telling us all about it. So I want to remember that when we get there after. But uh, Poirier Duffy, uh, is a, it's just like from an action standpoint, from uh, two really talented guys, similar sizes, you know, slight difference in their skill collections. But, you know, the, it, young up-and-comers, part of the 3.0 era, they kind of have it all. Really hard to break down. But don't you kind of feel like Duffy's just – that next level of one. And a lot of things when you're looking at it, you know, if we just look at five fights of Duffy's boxing and we look at Poirier's uh, striking, you know, we, and Duffy's throwing some nice kicks in there too. So we'll refer to boxing in the, in the Chinese way, meaning punches and kicks. Uh, it's like Duffy seems to be more economical and smarter and smoother and more developed. Um, but does that matter? And, and I would have liked Poirier with the mindset that he had before. He's a bitch of a scrapper who doesn't give a fuck, and he'll break you. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. That's a real thing that is rare in humanity. It's rare in these guys. But when I've talked to him the last couple times, he, and it shows evidence by him not taking that Irish kid, when uh, when Duffy was out with four days notice, he's like, you know, I talked to my team about it and, you know, my management gave me advice. You know, I got to start thinking about this as a business now. For a lot of guys, those are really important things to do. You know, it makes them better. But some of these savage guys with that natural savagery, that unique ferocity, sometimes it makes them worse. And that's what I'm kind of keeping an eye on here. Is Poirier going to go out and try to outthink this guy and outskill this guy? Because I don't think he's going to do that. I don't think he's going to beat this young, super focused, committed, talented boxer. The guys at TriStar, he walked in and he was wearing a blue belt, and they're all watching him. Or he's you know doing no gi, and he said, "Oh, I'm a blue belt." And they watched him, and they're like, "You're a fucking sandbagger." <laughs> so eventually, they just the brown belt I think might be in Japanese jujitsu. But they were like, you're a sandbagger, man. Your grappling is great. Your wrestling is great. Your top game is great. You know, you're using three or four points to control a guy with a free hand is great. I just think if if Poirier fights him like a skilled contest, I don't see him winning that fight. I see him being able to win that fight if he swaggers in like, you know, fuck you, you know, and, and fights that way. And that's a real thing. That You know, that's just not – it's fun to watch. It changes the fight. If I'm not responding the way that you normally get a response when you fight people, instead 
I'm throwing you off and my confidence push, I push forward in times where you're not used to it. That can really upset a guy like, like Duffy, who's a skill guy. But I kind of think Duffy's going to go in and win this fight. And I think he's going to look really good doing it. Also, Poirier, there's a confidence issue when you say no to a lower level guy on four days notice. That's, he'd have two paydays, you know? So it's like all of a sudden you're, you're, you're protecting something. You're protecting your spot in the line. You're protecting your spot in the company. You're protecting what you've accomplished. And that's not a good sign. Well, you brought up a lot of really good points. Just for the record, I'm going to go with Poria on this fight. I'm going to tell you why. I think there's some important things that we didn't discuss. Yep. Firstly, Joseph Duffy just had a concussion. Now, some people are like, oh, it's just a mild concussion. Well, I'm not a doctor. So I went online. I did my research. And mild concussions don't just go away, you know, two months later. That's something that might last a little longer. And I listened to this interview with Dustin Poirier as soon as he found out the news. And he said that he spoke with Joseph Duffy's manager. And they were saying that, you know, Duffy might not get cleared until February. And, you know, they're really worried about the head trauma. So they want to wait a while. And then the fight gets scheduled for January 2nd. So I got a question, you know, has Duffy been, uh, you know, sparring full contact? You know, where's his head at? Is he confident knowing that he got knocked out on fight week? And, you know, now he's fighting a dude who moved up a weight class, looks like a completely different fighter. You know, at 145 pounds, Dustin Poirier wasn't himself. It's kind of like Robert Whitaker at 170. You know, they cut so much weight. They don't have enough water in their brain. They take a punch and they don't react like they normally would when they're fully fed and fully hydrated. Now at 155 pounds, you're seeing Dustin Poirier go out there and knock guys out in the first round that have never been knocked out. And same thing with Robert Whitaker. You're seeing him look like a completely new animal at 170 now i mean 185 excuse me now the thing with uh dustin poirier you mentioned how you know if he tries to kind of you know fight cute with with uh, joe duffy i 100 percent agree with you he will lose that fight but i don't think that's what's going to happen i think he was onto something and he knows that you know he's got something for joe duffy he's going to fight him aggressive i think he's going to find his chin and he's going to knock him out and the reason i'm saying that is because you know when you get a concussion you don't just come back two months later. And for the fans watching, it's not like, you know, he had the concussion, he's resting, and now he's fighting on January 2nd. It's not like that. He had an eight-week camp or a six-week camp after the concussion. How much time did his brain have to rest? Yeah. Now, that's a great point. I like the way you're thinking. And this is exactly, these are exactly the types of things that you've got to look at, talk about, think, think out loud if you're going to try to, to break down fights. Um, because, like I said, and we might, we'll probably say it a few more times, these individual things don't exist in a vacuum. And the more of these topics and aspects you bring into the conversation, the more you realize it is very hard to weigh them all. Um, but, you know, let's look at things another way. Um, Chris Weidman uh, came into the fight with, um, with uh, Luke, Luke Rockhold at 192 pounds going in two weeks out, right? Right. Did he? I mean, he said he did. That doesn't mean he did. In fact, oh, yeah. I know. Sorry to interrupt you. That's. A, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I was saying before that, I was like, dude, yeah, he uh, he's doing a little gamesmanship there, huh? Yeah, he, he did it. And I, I had friends uh, training down there. Elias was training down there. I saw him. He was huge. And so he was just saying that. And as soon as I realized, it's like, wait a second. Why do we believe what these guys say? I mean... I wouldn't tell the truth if my career and my job and my health relied on it. 
Uh, I wouldn't tell the truth if I had, say, a small rib injury. I would say I had a concussion. Or if I had a concussion, I'd say I had a knee injury. Do you know what I mean? So now we're looking at the concussion issue and we're going, okay, shit, he had a concussion. That's bad. What if he didn't? <laughs> you know what I mean? I absolutely, absolutely know what you mean. But apparently the doctors, you know, they're the ones that did the tests on him and found out that he did have a mild concussion. And, uh, you know, I heard Robert Whiteford talking and, you know, obviously he's a teammate of Dustin Poirier, so it might be a little bit biased what he had to say. But what he said was that, you know, Joe Duffy could have kept it a secret. He didn't have to say anything, but apparently he went out of his way to mention that, hey, man, maybe I need to get checked out because I got knocked out in practice. And, you know, if he wouldn't have said anything, maybe the fight could have gone out. Now, that's just a theory. I'm not, uh, you know, accusing him of anything at all, but that's just another theory I have that, you know, I think that's very, uh, you know, reasonable to bring to the table. Yeah, uh, a lot of these things that we assume are taking as facts, you know, somebody says something, then a news media, a news outlet reports it. And we got to get to the point that we're doubting everything that we read in news outlets. By the time people, Anderson Silva says something about he thinks that the thing was canceled in, in, <laughs> in uh, Brazil. And then, you know, the, like supposedly reputable news people and news outlets go and say that's a fact. I mean... Anderson Silva doesn't know. Why would we assume he knows? But we'll assume that he knows if it'll get us clicks. And, and you know, a fighter might say that. So what – and, I, again, there's – I mean, well, we're looking at one of two uh, uh, possibilities here. Guy had a mild concussion. And the truth is a lot of doctors will tell you there's no such thing as a mild concussion, which is kind of what you're getting. A concussion's a concussion's a concussion. If that's the case, this guy's been either training with no contact or whatever, or he lied for some reason. Uh, you know, I didn't see a doctor's report. We said the doctor, they said, you know what I mean? It is fishy. It is very, very fishy. Um, but uh, yeah, who knows, man? Who knows? I, I like the concussion talk. It's, it is very valid. It's very relevant. And uh, you bringing it up said, tells me that you're, you're really looking at as many different variables as possible. And it's important to do so. I, I really do believe that. I think there's a lot. Analysis is fun. And I see dozens and dozens of people changing, the, just guys who love fighting, changing their Twitter handle to MMA analyst. And I fucking love seeing that. And I see people popping up on the internet and writing articles and they're MMA analysts. And I love seeing the movement. I love seeing that. And I know Jack Slack, Lawrence Kenshin, myself, a few other people, we'll take, we'll seek, whether secretly or we'll say it, we'll take a small amount of belief that we had some help in causing that. So I think it's great. But they need to do exactly what you're doing there. And that is not look at it like, well, his striking's better than his. Oh, well, he's a better wrestler than he is. So I think he's going to win. All these variables matter. How is this guy on, on game day? You know, who, um, uh, how, has he ever tra traveled to another country? You know, has the drug testing thing affected him? Oh my God, he had a concussion. All of these things are relevant. They're also really interesting. So if we want, if part of our, the, what we're having fun doing is talking about fighting, it's because it's neat. It's, there's some neat shit going on. And so I, I really like your, your, um, your um, uh, concussion uh, point. I really do. I think it's a great point. For sure, man. And not only that, but I mean, you'd think Irish Joe, you know, that's his nickname. You'd think yeah. he'd want a headline in Ireland. So, I mean, something really must have happened for him to have to pull out one week before the fight. And you think that guys like, you know, Firaz Zahabi, who overlooks the entire operation, you'd think he'd be on top of things. But who knows what the hell happened there, man? 
But you know, again, Faraz is a is a real smart dude. He's operating on. We're talking about how you know, uh, uh, McGregor is the obvious example, but we're seeing severe evolution out of Luke Rockhold. We're seeing all kinds of fighters going to, to and we talked about it earlier. That ability to learn faster and faster, and all the more you know, the more that lets you learn even more. Faraz is one of these guys. He is not just as a coach, but as a mind, as a philosopher, he is. And for us, and he's an art of war guy, and he absolutely would tell lies as part of his war to help his fighters. So that that yeah, man, we that fight just became a whole lot more interesting for me, and it already was a really good one. Dude, me too. I mean, holy shit! After having this conversation, who knows what the hell is going to happen on Saturday, right? Yeah, which is, I think. If you, if you do, there are some times where, hey, man, these details, I believe fully that we'll see this happen and this guy will win. The rest of the times, the more hard work you do analyzing, the more questions you have. Doesn't mean don't make a pick. Doesn't mean uh, don't uh, put some real belief into your knowledge and what you've studied. But it also, you go, holy fuck. Now there's so many things and so many variables it uh, it it makes the fight more interesting for everybody but the betters. It makes if you're betting, it makes it harder. Yeah, well, I am betting it, but it's still very interesting for yeah. me because I am a fan first. Exactly. And uh, you know, last uh, last time you were on the show, it was you know the year hadn't ended yet, and you told me you know if you come out on top, man, then hey, that's what's up. And I came out on top, so right. thank you very much, my friend. Now we got to move on to the next fight, and it's interesting because you were talking about how. You know, certain fighters. It's not about oh, this guy's got a better boxing. This guy's got better wrestling. You know, sometimes other factors come into play, such as are they traveling, you know, out of the country for the first time. And in this case, Joe Soto versus Michinori Tanaka. We all know that a lot of the Japanese guys they don't do as well in the U.S. because of the jet lag. But Michinori Tanaka, he actually made his UFC debut in Canada against Roland Delorme. Yeah. And he 30-27 him, no problem. So, I mean, and also Kawajiri last week, he beat up Jason Knight. So, I mean, you know, that theory, you know, maybe uh, maybe there's a percentage that most of the Japanese guys have lost in the U.S., but that doesn't mean that every Japanese guy is going to lose in the U.S. And I think that Tanaka, mentally speaking, is in a better place than Joe Soto. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, but Tanaka's coming off a year suspension because of PDs. And you are 100% false. You are incorrect. He did not fail for PDs. He actually tested positive for allergy meds, okay? Allergy meds. I mean, so, I mean, for if anyone's expecting Tanaka to come in deflated, they're going to be in for a rude awakening, all right? And I think that uh, Tanaka probably wants this fight more, but I want to hear your opinion on this. Yeah, you know, I go back now. I'm looking at it on uh, the Hunt versus Nelson card. I don't remember where that took place. Japan in October of last year. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, I don't remember that one. I don't know how far on the undercard it was, but I saw him beat Roley uh, in 2014. So about, you know, we're going to say like 16 months ago. And Roley is a very, like, very athletic grappler. Very athletic grappler. Quick choices, good angles in his movement, great hips, very physical, super aggressive. And... Uh, you know, he was, uh, Tanaka was all over him. And I was shocked. I was shocked by that because I know how good Roley really is. And I've been calling Roley's fights for many years. And a lot of people didn't really know Roley because he was sort of a quiet guy from Winnipeg. And when he did speak up, you know, it just didn't, I don't know. It's, fighting is a weird thing, man. 
shouldn't matter how well you speak, but sometimes that's that makes a difference. But Roly's good. Roly is really, really good in the, the, the grappling in particular. So that comparison point to me, and Tanaka was super like um, progressively aggressive. Like he was always looking, I gotta get to side, make him make a mistake, go to the mountain, make him give up my, his back, attack the choke. And that type of, of uh, traditional thinking, old school jujitsu thinking, and it's not old school in a bad way. It's old school because it's tried and proved. Advance your position. If I'm advancing my position, you can either stop me or work really, really hard to take away my position. So if I'm inside, you'll try to get half guard, and I'll advance back to the side. You'll try to get half card. I'll advance back to side. And if you get tired, I'll push to knee on belly. That style of jujitsu at 135 pounds works really, really well. And I like him in it. I, I think Joe Soto is an amazing fighter. I love watching him fight. Um, but he's been knocked out a couple times. And, uh, you know, obviously you, you come in and, uh, and fight, you know, a champion on, was it 26 hours notice? Yeah, Burrell literally pulled out on the day of the weigh-ins. Yeah, and, you know Joe Silva and Sean Shelby had a choice. They could have even get they could have either given that title shot to Joe Soto or Anthony Burchak, and they chose Joe Soto. Yeah, and then uh, so then Burchak. Now I thought that the Burchak Soto matchup, and I was hanging out with a couple of friends, uh, um, uh, Evan Boris, who's a uh, uh, coach with the Black Zillions, Lachlan Chang, who. Um, kind of an overall coach for Elias Theodoro. And we were all looking at that fight and just going, Sean Shelby just like, was oh, what a, what's, holy shit, these two, just nothing but offense. They're both going to think offensively. And it's, it's a guaranteed fight. And it was. But he's been, he was on the wrong end of it and uh, got hit while going down hard. You talk about concussions, man. You know, in, in August of 2014, I've been working on my breakdown of Dillashaw Burrell for the last three or four days, really the last couple of weeks, but the last three or four days looking at it. So it's not only breaking down technique now, but I'm, I like making it an art piece. Like I like trying to make things flow beautifully and find the right music. And, and so I'm no longer just looking at the technique of things. I'm looking at the flavor of shots and the lighting and how one shot will move to the next and kind of starting to try to, to you know, to, I, I directed a couple of music videos when I was younger and I'm trying to incorporate some of that kind of thinking. So to do that, you will watch the same thing sometimes and I'll get, uh, I'll get footage from the UFC for these breakdowns. Cause you know, I have a contract with them to do them. So I'll go and I'll request, send me everything you have on this fight. So you get the fight, but you also get these red camera footage and these super slow-mo footages. And then sometimes there'll be, if it's a certain big moment, like Dillashaw shit-kicking Soto, head kick, and then that one clean punch. I'll watch it from like four or five different angles, and I might watch each one five or six times. So I've seen that guy got knocked out like 20 times in the last three days. So in my mind, he's not doing real well. You know what I mean? I 100%. Yeah. know what you mean and if you go back and you watch his fight with joe warren that's in my well, opinion when joe soto was at you know the pinnacle of his career i know he's only 28 years old but as we all know 
fight years and real, you know, age are two entirely different things. I mean, Jose Aldo, he's only 20, 28. And then you look at a guy like Paul Felder or Alan Juban, they're like 33 and yeah. they're young in their career. So, you know, fight age and real age are two completely different things. Now, I yeah. do think that Joe Soto was in his prime when he fought Joe Warren. He looked really good at first in that fight. But then when things started to not really go his way, you know, I know it's officially a knockout, but I, I don't want to say that he kind of looked for the door, but he kind of did. I have a lot of respect for Joe Soto. He's a very good fighter. But right now, at this point in his career, I think Tanaka wants it more. And I think Tanaka is going to be making even more improvements since the last time we saw him. Because this kid's only 25 years old. Last time we saw him, he was 23. He was in a fight of the night and, uh, you know, test positive for allergy meds, which I don't even know how that's a banned substance. I feel really bad for the guy. But if you've been looking at him on, uh, you know, his Instagram and his Twitter, this guy is still shredded as can be not that uh, muscles make you win fights or anything but what i'm trying to say here is that he's very confident and i think uh confidence goes a long way in the sport yeah he um you know now i i don't know what kind of allergy meds it is but certain ones are bronchial dilators and those ones are ones that it, it makes sense that they could be banned substances because they help kind of you know with your cardio capacity and stuff like that so it is possible that although it is a uh and not for sure because i haven't seen what kind of is but that it is an allergy medi uh, medication it does have a performance enhancing effect or at least theoretically but I'll, I'll check that out i just feel like he's on his way up and soto who's really talented really fun to watch and really tough has been knocked out three times in the last four years or so maybe four and a half years and that's rough man that's that's really rough and uh, so I'm leaning towards Tanaka. I feel like it, it, there's going to be a couple of them that we're going to look at, you know, on the main, this one. And there was at least one or two on the main card where I glance at them and it's like, don't you have the feeling that they're like, yeah, Soto, you have had a couple of tough ones. You got knocked out by the champ on 26 uh, hours notice. And then you fought in an insane couple of minutes with a heavy hitter. Why don't we give you one that's maybe a little less brain trauma? But it's still ridiculously hard fight. So even those ones that feel like, all right, you're due a little bit of a softer touch, there aren't even really that many soft touches out there in the top 15 in, in these divisions. Everybody's so good. So I, I, I'll be cheering for Joe Soto because I like the guys with that kind of heart. But I'm leaning towards Tanaka for sure. Same here. Just sub them. Just sub them or sub them in you know, the late second or the third or to get a decision win out grappling them. Yeah, and obviously, you know, what happened in the Anthony Burchek fight, you know, that went down how it went down. But, you know, what I really took note of was the Dillashaw fight. You know, I thought Dillashaw was playing with him a little bit. I thought Dillashaw was trying to be cute. I thought if Dillashaw wanted to finish him in the first round, he could have finished him in the first round. But he decided to, you know, show off his bang Muay Thai. And then in the last round, he went out there and put the icing on the cake. And I think it was a very demoralizing loss. For Joe Soto because he, he got toyed with for five rounds and he got knocked out. And it's like, where do you go from here? Yeah, it's a tough one. And like I said, uh, you know, when you watch that one 15 or 20 times from different angles, he gets hit and he's like straightened right up. So he's sort of losing touch with his, you know, senses or he's out on his feet. And then he just gets drilled in that very precarious state. And, you know, I mean, he did take a good length of time off after that, I think. I think that was 2014 when TJ took him out. Uh, you know, I'll take a look here. So it was there 12 months between those fights between TJ and, uh, well, yeah. So he fought, uh, TJ at the end of 
2014. Yeah. And then we caught um, in New Orleans, which I believe was in the first half of 2015. Yeah, you know, that's just what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, June. So, yeah, August to June. So he did have 10 months, He, you know, nine and a half, 10 months. But still, you know, how long has it been now? You know, June, July, August, I'm going finger counting. July, August, <laughs> you know, you're going only six months now. So we went 10 months after some, some trauma, and now we're going six months. You know, this it's not a great sign. You hope you hope he goes out there and he just moves well and he feels great and he looks good and, and he and he puts it on him and then we this conversation can turn back to a more positive outlook for him. That's what I'm hoping. But 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 I'm I'm feeling like Tanaka would if you told me I have to bet fifty bucks on it, I'd be leaning towards Tanaka. I you know, I wouldn't necessarily say by finish, although he may submit him. I, I would just bet on him being the winner. I mean, I think that's what we can all hope for, but, you know, this is a very brutal sport, and, you know, the truth hurts sometimes. It is what it is, my friend, and you know firsthand because you've actually fought. Yeah. Uh, I also know what it's like to lose vision, and you were talking about that moment where, you know, it's like, uh, does Soto just want out of the fight? If you lose vision in a fight, a fight is a terrifying thing even when you're controlling your emotions, but if you can't see and uh, imagine a car accident. You know it's happening in 10 seconds or 40 seconds or 60 seconds, and they tell you it's going to happen, but you're blind. You know, it's a really serious thing. And losing – a lot of guys lose vision by head trauma. I mean, um, who's uh, – Michael Chandler. You remember Michael Chandler getting rocked in a fight? Oh, and kind my of like, God. That was one of the scariest knockouts I've ever seen. Not because, you know, he was out stiff, which wasn't the case. It's because his brain shut off, and he was just there standing. And it's like he was waving off the fight. He has no recollection of what happened. And I'm glad you brought that up. You know, obviously you fought. I've never fought, you know, uh, an official sanctioned fight, but I've been training martial arts for a very, very long time. I'm also a musician. I want to give you one personal example from my uh, from my experiences, you know, so I was sparring with uh, this Muay Thai world champion, and he hit me really hard in the temple. And you know, at the time, I was fine. And a couple hours later, I had a session. You know, I'm a drummer, so I was doing a session, and you know, I got the click track in my ear, and my vision starts getting blurry. So I, I tell uh, you know the guy in the control room, I was like, hold on a sec, I, I need I need a second. My vision started getting blurry. I was like, what the fuck is going on right now? And then I was like, oh, it's because uh, that fucking dude hit me in the temple and that's just uh that's just what happens and in my case we weren't even fighting to you know to try to kill each other we were just sparring in the gym these guys are you know they got bragging rights they got half of their money on the line the yeah. family's watching on tv these guys are actually trying to hurt each other so i can only imagine how much different it is for someone like joe soto who actually got knocked out compared to myself who you know just does it for fun yeah it's uh it really you know I've had that same um, thing you're describing where uh, I got really brutally, probably the worst. I've had a few concussions, and they are scary, and I'm glad my brain doesn't you know, seem to have too many uh, things, although I have some memory issues now, and, and the guys on Fight Network, especially Ram Dean, he's always watching for it, and my memory issue seems to be around names for whatever reason. I can tell you, oh, you know, that guy wears a chain and he hits his uh, power bombs, uh, uh, rampage something. like, And, you know, it'll be something obvious. 
and he'll go, uh, Jackson. I'm like, yeah, yeah, Jackson. And so he helps me out with that. And other than that, I'm all right. But there's a guy, if you Google him, <laughs> good dude, great guy. His name is Dan Torture Chambers. And Dan, Dan is a really good guy. And I had such a good time sparring with him. But he was a 185-pounder. He was probably 210, 215 at the time. And he was Lee Mean and Jordan Mean. You know, Jordan Young Gun Mean. He's a, he was a Jordan, me and uh, buddy and training partner. And Lee, Jordan's dad, ran the gym. And I was out there and, uh, and I was sparring. And I didn't, I don't know if he's just, they always spar hard. I weighed 155 pounds. And that guy ripped me with straight right hands a couple of times. And what I loved about it was... I stayed in it, and my brain at that time, it doesn't always do this, uh, because I'm not I'm naturally built to fight. I'm, you know, and there's lots of other guys who succeed much, you know, far along the way that aren't really either. They're problem solvers who learn to stay calm. But my brain, when traumatized, thought to itself, well, you got to take this fucking guy out of here. <laughs> it didn't go, wait, 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 stop. It said in that day, get in here and fucking hit that guy. And it was a great experience for that. But later that night, I was ring announcing in Lethbridge, and I started throwing up. And then uh, this really cute girl, I was single at the time, was sort of asking me what I was doing after I threw up. And then I had this incredible headache in the bar. And I realized, like, all I had to do was go lie down somewhere dark. And this incredibly pretty girl that I really kind of had the hots for was asking me if I wanted to go somewhere with her. And I was so concussed, I had to say no. And I regret it to this day. And I'm so mad at Dan Chambers for that. But... Uh, <laughs> I don't know how we got off on that tangent, but yeah, concussions are a spooky thing. And, and, uh, you know, it's, I think it's good when you see Rogan is a guy who, who does address and talk about that quite a bit now. And I think that's a good thing because if you're a young guy and you understand these are the risks and you understand that the rewards are small, you have to fight long and hard for a long time and make eight or $10,000 or four or $500 and maybe never get there. And you're risking some health issues, and you know all that, and you choose to do it. More power to you, to you, man. Like we live in a free society, you have the right to eat as many Twinkies as you want, or smoke as many cigarettes as you want, or go and put yourself and play football or or box or whatever, because that's what that's the type of free society we happily live in. But it's better if you do that knowing the risks. Absolutely, a hundred percent. And you know, you did bring up Jordan Meehan, and I want to talk about him for a second because. That goes back to the example that we were briefly alluding to earlier where, you know, fight years and actual years are two entirely different things. You know, Jordan, yeah. he's younger than me, man. He's, you know, he's 25 years old and, uh, you know, he had to call it a day because his body just couldn't take it anymore. But then you see guys, like I mentioned, Alan Juban, Paul Felder, you know, they're, uh, you know, 31 to 33 in that range and they're just at the beginning of their career. So yeah. Do you know uh, exactly what happened with Jordan besides, you know, his body, you know, couldn't really hold up anymore? I honestly think because Jordan's such a classy guy that, I, I actually think his body is all right. I really do. I think he's just a really classy guy. This is just my opinion. I'm friends with his dad and I'm friends with Jordan. They've never said this to me, but I think it has more to do with fighter pay and treatment of athletes and those kinds of things. I really do. Um, and I just think that Jordan is very classy and I commend him if some of those things are the things that he didn't feel like saying it. He felt like going down and saying, I think, I think he had – very close to 40 fights. I'm going to look it up right now. And, and that's not even including amateur or yeah, the – Yeah, probably 10 more. Yeah, probably 10 more that we're not 
you know, are not recorded there. So we have, and maybe he will be back. You know, there's, maybe he will, but he's a smart kid too, you know. He'll find 29 wins and 10 losses officially, and he is currently 26 years old. Wow. Yeah, you know, and I hope if he comes back, it's on his own terms. You know, he has to want to come back because, you know, he's a very talented guy. But if you uh, if you don't want it, you should stay away from the sport. But if he finds that fire inside himself to make it, make his return, I will 100% be watching that fight. He's an incredible fighter. So this is what I'm looking at. And, again, he's never said anything like this to me. And I'm reading into this on my own – in my own ways. But – I think the feeling is that some people are like, well, when you get to the top, you'll be making big money and you'll be well taken care of. And he's like, I fought fucking Dan Miller, Matt Brown, Mike Pyle, and Tiago Alves, uh, and Tyron Woodley. I'm already at the top. Do you know what I mean? Like, so you, he's at that literally the top level. Those are the top guys. He hasn't made himself super rich. And, uh, you know, at that level, you're looking and going, okay, three or four years of this, what will it then do to my body? Um, you know, his father was accused of a crime that he didn't commit while he was down on something. Later, it was found out that the accuser uh, had a lot of not only inconsistencies in the thing, but a really large background that involved, you know, um, fraud and stuff like that. And so through whoever was the process me, uh, uh, Lee his father was banned from an event Jordan went out and just crushed Mike Pyle but I, nobody said anything to me about it but I have a feeling that didn't sit too well with them either so I don't know I know them well Lee is a, is a good friend I really like and admire Lee a lot and uh, he's never said anything like that so I don't know why I get that feeling but uh, I kind of do but well you never know and so let's just say you are hungry and it's all you think about and you're consumed by fighting, none of that shit would bother you anyways. It really wouldn't if it's, the, if it's all you want in the world. So even if those things, if I'm right, and some of those things did affect Jordan, it's still a symptom that, hey, man, I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life regardless. Yeah, and I got all the respect in the world for Jordan Meehan. So if you're watching, man, I hope you're doing well in whatever you're pursuing now. Now, we got to talk about Abel Trujillo versus Tony Sims. This is a quite an interesting fight because, you know, obviously with Abel, he's super explosive. He comes out there. He tries to knock you out. He had a very unfortunate, you know, result in his last fight where, you know, Gleason Tebow had him in the rear naked choke, which, I mean, you either tap or you go to sleep or you get out of it. And the ref didn't give him a chance to tap, go to sleep, or get out of it. And it's like, come on, man. Like, we, I want to know what would have happened in that fight. So, But this is a completely different fight. You know, Tony Sims, he's a little bit cleaner on the feet than Abel. He's got, you know, a good wrestling background. But, I mean, a lot of that shit doesn't really matter if you get tagged on the chin one time by Abel Trujillo. So I really don't know what's going to happen. I would lean towards Tony Sims because he seems on paper to be the cleaner fighter. And I don't mean cleaner in terms of uh, PEDs or any shit like that. I mean I mean cleaner in terms of his technique. Like uh, he throws uh, straight, crisp punches, whereas Abel Trujillo likes to wing those hooks. And there's nothing wrong with winging those hooks if you land, you know, where you're, where you're aiming. So in this fight, in my opinion, it's a matter of, uh, you know, who gets off on their game plan first, who starts landing the bigger shots, who makes the – other guys start to question himself. 
Yeah, you know what? There's a lot of interesting stuff about this one. Tony Sims is one of these guys who's gone and joined TJ uh, Dillashaw and a few other guys down in that elevation fight team. So let's see what that coaching staff kind of looks like in the corner and let's see what kind of shape he's in and stuff. That Those types of gyms, uh, I mean, some there hasn't been a great deal of success in a lot of sports uh, with this idea. I mean, you go back to Foxcatcher, where somebody with some money, whether it's a company or a guy, says, let's bring all the best guys in and make the best team. We, we haven't always seen that much success. And part of the reason is, don't mind me if I get a beer. Part of the reason is, is you get people who go, wouldn't it be great to head out and take this job? Well, where are we heading up to? Uh, somewhere on the West Coast or Canada or whatever, but they're paying me a lot of money. Great. Well, if they pay me a lot of money, maybe I can also do some sponsorship. And all of a sudden, you get a bunch of guys, that, and this is not a knock. You just you can get a bunch of coaching staff and even fighters who are very Ronin-like. They're, they're out looking to build their own brand. And so we'll see. We'll see kind of what that looks like. That's going to be an interesting one to kind of – I don't know if we've seen anybody fight – from that kind of new elevation fight team thing. So I'm interested to see that. I like Tony Sims. If you look back, he fought Ollie, um, uh, Oliver Aubin Mercier. Uh, he's a Canadian kid that we've been watching, been commentating his fights since probably his first fight. And I fought my last fight on a show that I think he fought on. And I think he probably finished his guy in a minute. Um, and Ollie's a good dude and he's very talented. And this Sims guy, if you remember that fight, as I recall, it is a fight that had the lowest amount of strikes thrown of any fight in UFC history. Yeah, it was definitely that kind of fight. And um, Robin, just real quick, you mentioned how Tony Sims is part of, you know, one of those quote unquote super teams, yeah. but so is Abel Trujillo. You know, if you know the story yeah. behind the well, Black Villains with, uh, with uh, what's his name, Glenn Robinson, you know, leaving ATT, exactly. going out there, starting the Black Zillions. So literally, both these guys are coming from similar environments. You know, yeah. a couple of differences. Tony Sims trains in elevation. He's training with guys like Matt Brown, guys like TJ Dillashaw. Yeah. But uh, Abel Trujillo is training with guys like Rashad Evans, Henry Hooft, who's a master yeah. strategist. So, But then again, it's hard to give a guy like Abel Trujillo a strategy because he's one of these fighters that will come out, he'll wing some big hooks. You know, if he lands, you're in big trouble. But if he doesn't land, you know, he can gas out a little bit. He might kind of look for the door a little bit. But uh, – Man, I cannot wait to see what happens when well, Tony Sims fight Abel Trujillo. I think Tony Sims, if you look at, at that fight, it was a grinder of a fight. Like, and I mean that kind just where your muscles are dying and your lungs are burning and your eyes are watering. And it's just a real rough one when it comes to kind of pushing your fitness to the max. And Sims took that on 15 days notice at a weight, his first fight at lightweight too. Coming down. So he had to make weight and then uh, grind it out for 15 minutes with Ollie uh, at a weight that he had not been making. And he did it for 15 minutes. So that tells me if it goes into the later rounds and we see a grappling heavy, you know, a wrestling heavy type of fight, he's winning that fight. Absolutely. I'm actually really glad, glad you brought that up because if it does go to the later rounds, I do also think that favors Tony Sims because if you watch that fight against Ollie, there was a moment in that third round when, you know, Ollie's going for the takedown. Tony Sims is sprawled out and he's landing some big punches on Ollie, but he didn't have enough time 
or enough energy to finish the fight. But I'm pretty damn sure that Abel Trujillo wouldn't have even made it to that point with Ollie, man. But then again, MMA math doesn't mean shit. Styles make fights. So, you know, this is a unique matchup. and We're going to have to see what happens when those two step inside the UFC's octagon. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. Uh, you know, if uh, I think the one thing we can feel pretty good about saying is if Trujillo is going to win that fight, it's inside the distance. He's going to either knock him out or he's going to hurt him and then get his neck. Uh, if it goes the distance, Sims is very likely to win that fight based on what he could accomplish on a week's notice, training at elevation, all those kinds of things. I, I think if it goes past seven minutes, you start really leaning towards him. Absolutely. You know, obviously in any able Trujillo fight, you know, there is a chance he can knock someone out. But on the flip side, you know, with Tony Sims' style, you know, he could counter one of those big left hooks and throw a straight right down the pipe and knock out Abel. So, you know, the, I think there's a chance for a knockout on either side here. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, uh, and as we kind of talk this one out and look at those aspects, I think we get to the point that Tony Sims has, we feel, has more ways to win the fight. Yeah. Um, but, again, you know, it's like – it's hard to be able to look a friend in the eye who says, I got a thousand dollars. I'm going on this fight and tell him which way to go. But if somebody again said, you know, this fight happens 10 times, who's going to win it six or seven times. I'm going to say Tony Sims. And I, I say that, you know, as a, uh, as a, a guy who enjoys watching Trujillo fight and a guy who has friends at the Black Zillions who speak very highly of him. But, you know, I, if, if you were going to say who's going to win this six or seven times out of ten, I'm going to say Tony Sims is. Yeah, I agree with you. And on paper, it should be a very exciting fight. Now, next up, we, we got the return of Michael Mayday McDonald. He's taking on Masanori Kanehara. And, man, we haven't seen Mayday in a while. But, you know, when he's on top of his game, he's got some of the most vicious knockout power in that division. You know, when he's on his game, he's got good takedown defense. He can even tap a couple guys out. You know, in his first couple UFC fights, he had some three-round wars. So he's been the distance more than once. But then he starts knocking guys out in the first round with Masanori Kanahara, you know, he's he's a solid, serviceable journeyman. And uh, we all remember the knockout against Marlon Sandro, one of the most brutal knockouts in MMA history. And on paper, Michael McDonald could do something similar. If he shows up, you know, in, in peak form, he could knock out Kanahara. But he's coming off a two-year layoff. And, you know, a lot of people don't really understand the kind of injury this guy had. Let me let me let me talk about that real quick. He injured his hands because he doesn't wrap his hands when he hits the bag. To me, that's a that's a that's a knock on just your IQ because I mean, when you hit as hard as Michael McDonald hits, I mean, we can all agree that he's one of the top 5 hitters at Bantamweight, right? Right, Robin? Oh yeah. When you're one of the top 5 hitters in the UFC, in your division, you better fucking wrap your hands up when you hit that bag. And the fact that, you know, he wasn't that, you know, that's questionable to his IQ. And, uh, you know, that translates to other areas in the fight. You know, he might make some questionable decisions coming off a two-year layoff. But if you learn some lessons from his mistakes in the past, I do think he can prevail here. We just don't know who's going to show up. What's your take on this fight, Robin? Yeah, I, I like the way you're thinking. Uh, do you have what? What if you were just going to search a fighter? What do you use? Uh, Tapology or Sherdog or? You talking record or what? Uh, yeah, just you know some basic info 
on a fighter? What what would you? Uh... Well, I usually Google their name, and if they have a wiki page, I'll check that. I'll also check the Sure Dog. The thing yeah. I like about the wiki pages is it shows their amateur records as well. Yeah. And uh, Sure Dog is cool too because you know with wiki, not everyone, not all their opponents are clickable. You know, some guys don't have pages. With Sure Dog, you can click every single opponent. You know, see their records, see where they've been, and yeah. So I definitely use Google first and take it from there. Yeah, uh, uh, Tapology is also really good. They've got a lot of you know little and uh, detailed. My uh, computer's going very slowly. The reason I ask is I wanted to. I'll search for you. What do you want me to search? Yeah. Uh, look at Michael McDonald and see if any other Michael McDonald's come up, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Oh, yeah. Well, there's the famous kickboxer Michael McDonald. Yeah, there's also a great singer Michael McDonald, but, I mean, uh, MMA fighters Michael McDonald. Okay, let's see. I'm going to type in Michael McDonald MMA fighter, and let's see what happens. Or just even MMA. Okay. But, uh, uh, this Michael McDonald... All right, I got Michael Mayday McDonald, and uh, it looks like that's the only guy I got that came up. MAC. Try MAC, Donald. Okay, like Rory. Let's see. Yeah. Nothing. Oh, okay. Well, there's a guy. His last name is McDonald, and I thought it might have been Michael, but I fought and, and I fought on a, a show uh, called Aggression MMA in Edmonton, Alberta. Actually, you know what? I can just, I know how I can find it. Anyways, this guy uh, is fighting right before me, I think. Yeah, he was right before me. And the reason I know that, because when a guy goes to walk out before you, um, he, uh, you know that pretty soon you're up. Could be the introduction, three five-minute rounds, and two one-minutes in between, uh, plus a post-fight speech, it could be, you know, a bunch of stuff, or it could happen really, really, really fast and then be over. <laughs> and so you, you're ready from that moment on. So the guy who walks out before me is, they're saying he's up, and he's just sort of pacing. Hold on, I'm pulling up his name here. Um, so this guy's pacing, and you're about to fight? Yeah, and he's pacing, and they say, you know, go ahead, uh, you're up, McDonald. And uh, sorry, I got the wrong one. One sec. And so he just goes, and he goes, all right. And his hands are not wrapped. And I heard him say earlier, do I have to wrap my hands? I'm like, well, no, if you don't want to. You know, the, the Edmonton Commission, does, you don't have to do it. He just grabs his mitts, pulls it on, pulls it on, they whip tape around, and he walks out. And I hear some introductions, and I hear a bunch of screaming. And he walks back in, peels off his gloves, which are covered in blood, throws them, and sits down. And I was up. It was literally like he, he ran out. He was the second one introduced. He ran out. Probably took him 20 seconds to get to the cage. They introduced him again. He threw six or eight punches. The guy was unconscious. He ran back, and he threw him off. No fucking rap. No nothing whatsoever. And it was, I mean, on those shows, there's some very, very – interesting and wild things you get exposed to but seeing a guy who wasn't even warmed up oh matt mcdonald m-a-t uh, there you go i was about to ask you are, are we talking about mayday because that yeah. you described mayday perfectly yeah. you know knocks guys out in devastating yeah. fashion and doesn't wrap his hands yeah same and that's what made me think of it when you were saying that it's like some of these guys are just a different kind of guy but matt mcdonald the guy that fought on that show 
who was a real rugged guy who had, you know, and he grew, grew up to be, I believe, a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and a leader and a great coach and a great teacher from my understanding. But I think he had more of a challenging street kind of upbringing. I could be wrong. Uh, I, and that, that was in his nature, that fighting like that was in his nature. But then you take Michael McDonald, who's a religious kid, from what I understand, you know, from a, from a good family. Um, so your point to saying, why don't you fucking wrap your hands? It's not like it's something in him, you know, this natural visceral nature. It's just not very smart, you know? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's also strange. It's like you, you, you question people's sort of motivation and details and this is maybe iffy territory to get into. Although in a time of Donald Trump, people say whatever the hell they wanted to. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but uh, you know, when you're in your 20s, how old is Michael McDonald? 25, 26 now? No, he's, he's younger than me. He's got to be like 23, 24. Yeah, 24. So, and somewhere at 21 or 22, he said that he was going to become, um, what do you call it when you're crazy and you don't have sex at all? Abstinent? Abstinent. So he was at 21 after, you know, kind of being a normal uh, teenager and doing the things that, that people do, he decided to become abstinent at 21. Now that's, I mean, it's, it's irregular to say the least, right? So yeah. a guy who, who doesn't wrap his hands for protection and then doesn't need to wrap whatever for protection because he doesn't even, he, he makes choices different than the rest of us. You know what I'm getting at? I so, do. Uh, so that, all of those things are valid things about his motivation and who he is. and But at the same time, Dude can fucking knock people out. Let me ask you something, Robin. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, you know, earlier on the show, we were talking about how, you know, some guys might lie, you know, for gamesmanship or to make you think a certain way. Do you think there's any bullshit with this guy or you think that's legit, you know? You think he's really like that? That's a really good question. It feel that that would be a really weird one to just bring up publicly that you've decided not to have sex as an adult. You know, even though you did earlier, whether that was motivated by any number of things. And I'm not being judgmental or saying it's just irregular. It's just out of the norm. Let's say that. Yeah, your um, body's supposed to fucking have sex. It is what it is, man. Exactly. I mean, this is a, a part of humanity. So, but, you know, and then at, he, he came out and he talked about how, well, I fought your eye a favor and I didn't get paid enough money. So, and that all seems very reasonable, like just as much as it might be a part of human nature to, to have sex. It's also a part of human nature to get paid for your work. And he was pretty adamant about that. So yeah, do any of these things give us any insight into his motivation, how hard he's trained, how focused he is? Not really. You know, they just make us think he's a weird and interesting guy. We like weird and interesting guys in the fight game. So, uh, but if you, just ask me on a feeling, what do you think is going to happen? I think he's going to swagger out there and drill this guy in the head a couple of times and put him to sleep. That's what I'm thinking, you know? But, I mean, when a guy hasn't fought in a couple of years, can you do any better than that, you know? Yeah, you know, it's also interesting to complain about your pay when you take two years off of work. I know, you know, he had an injury, but, I mean, did his hand injury really last two years? Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. He's... All, you put all these things together, and he's just a little different. But, you know, there's been a long history of, of great fighters who see the world very differently, you know, and, and kind of go through life very differently. Uh, so, 
you know, it takes a certain amount of weird to, to be a good fighter, and he seems to have some of it. So, we'll oh, yeah. I mean, all of this, again, makes for some uh, for some interesting stuff, but uh, some interesting conversations. But, but uh, in the end, when a guy hasn't fought for two years, anybody who does any – who just says uh, Michael McDonald by knockout, well, that could happen, then you'll look smart. Or it won't happen, and you'll look stupid. So, I mean, realistically – Again, you know, feeling I, – I feel like a guy who had that ability, if he's been seriously training and he comes out there, he, he may lay him out. But yeah. I mean, obviously that's what's expected to happen. But as you know, you know, two years off, hand injuries, complaining about the pay, who knows where his head's at. I'm expecting a knockout by Michael McDonald, but, I mean, definitely not betting on that, man. I mean, he's been gone way too long, and, yeah, all the stuff we mentioned. So we'll have to see what happens at UFC 195, right, Robin? Yeah, there's a lot of really – hey, there are, you know, on the other hand, there are ones that we can sit down and go, all right, let's look at the top eight fights on this. You feel pretty good this guy's going to win this. He'll win that fight a lot, you know – eight times out of ten because of this, this, and this. Oh, this one's a bit of a lopsided one. I think she wins that fight most of the time. There are cards like that. But the ones that are the fun ones, the ones that you you know, people seem to get people jumping out of their seats are the ones that have more variables, more tough to tough to weigh out variables. And um, uh, but I, I enjoy chatting about it with you, brother, because all of these things matter. And the more people I think, like we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of more and more people all the time that are looking at analysis instead of just gossip and stories. And that makes me very happy. But analysis does not happen in a vacuum. These things are all who they are tonight is a bigger thing than how good their left hook is. And, and you know, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's starting to be fun. It, oh, fuck, it's never not fun. But the more stuff you learn, the more questions it raises. And what you realize is if anybody's ever claiming to be an expert, and there are people who point at people who work in fighting and say, oh, that guy's a fight expert. People give me compliments on Twitter all the time about the job that I do. But if somebody's telling you they're an expert, they just haven't learned enough to realize how little they know. Absolutely. Anything can happen in this sport. Yeah. You know, if you're involved in betting on fights or – Picking fights, you got to be very selective with what yeah. you, you know. For example, it's funny because we're going to break down the rest of the card, but for me as a gambling man, the only fights I'm going to play are the are two that we mentioned earlier, Tanaka and Poirier, for the for the reasons we mentioned. But if you're going to bet on a guy like Michael McDonald, I mean, you're probably going to be sweating that out because you have no idea what's going to happen. Not that I have any idea what's going to happen in those fights. I'm confident. It's just. You know, there's factors that, you know, I really look at the concussion issue, the, you know, maybe one guy's at the end of his career issue. But with Michael McDonald and Masanori Kanahara, it's one of those fights where we just have to tune in as fans and see how it unfolds. One of uh, somebody that's joining us uh, openly ignorant at openly ignorant on Twitter, uh, I approve of his name, said he listened to Mayday's Periscope today and he's reluctant to bet on it. Now, he didn't get into detail, but if, if he listened to his periscope and he kind of read the comfort level or his thought processes or whatever, I trust him on that. You know, and those things do matter, man. I didn't make that confident bet, tell the world that, that uh, uh, excuse me, Holly Holm is going to uh, knock Ronda out, even though at the same time you make these statements. It's not the end of the world if you're wrong. You know, part of, part of being 
doing this kind of job is being wrong some of the time. And and part of it is people going, see, you don't know that much. And that's that's just part of it. But I was pretty caught. I felt good about that one. And it was the day of the weigh-ins that told me. And it was, if you take everything else into account and there, this will work if she can do it. And this will be stopped if she's not at her best. And you can read that someone is or isn't at their best. That makes a difference. It really, really does. It's over and over and over again. It's been proven because they're not robots. They're humans. And if Michael McDonald's not doing well and openly ignorant is not liking what he's hearing on Periscope, <laughs> then uh, don't. That I would tell people don't bet that one. And do you do you happen to know the odds? Out of curiosity. Yeah. It's minus 600, so you definitely do not bet that fight. The number is uh, kind of insane. And, you know, just oh, credit you to you. 20 bucks on the, un on the underdog on that one. Hey, there you go. You know, then it goes back to our discussion about Japanese fighters fighting in yeah. America. You know, there's so many factors in that fight. But it, I would say it's dog or pass as well, but I'm passing completely. Yeah. And credit to you for, uh, you know, for picking home. We all know that you are one of the only people on planet Earth that confidently picked Holly home. I was not one of those people. Got to give you credit where credit's due, but I was one of those people who was bullish and over the top about Conor McGregor beating Jose Alda for over a year. So, you yeah. know, I'm glad yeah. whoever, whoever tailed that play, congrats, man. Now, yeah. next up, we got to talk about a very, very exciting fight on paper. Diego Brandao versus Brian T-City Ortega. And let me tell you what, you know, people used to say the guard is dead and that, you know, Jiu-Jitsu isn't alive in MMA anymore. Let me tell you what. Go watch Brian T. City Ortega. The things that this kid does is he implements that high-level Jiu-Jitsu in MMA because, you know, he's proficient in other areas. I know his stand-up might look a little sloppy, but it's effective because he goes forward. He's got that mindset of a winner. You know, he tries to break you. And even if, even if you land a couple shots on his chin – you know, he's not going to get discouraged. He's not going to take a back step. He's going to try to win the fight until the bitter end. And then you get desperate. You take this guy down. He's elbowing you from his guard. He's sweeping Brazilian jiu-jitsu yeah. black belts. I am so impressed with Brian T. City Ortega. Another thing with Brandao, we got to always respect Brandao, especially in round number one because, I mean, this guy – you know, he'll blitz you. He's one of those uh, – he's almost like a throwback fighter, like a old-school Vitor Belfort where, you know, he'll sit back for a second, you leave one little opening, and 30 punches are coming your way, you know, flying knees. Yeah. When he was on that season at Tough, dudes were fucking scared to fight him. And I'm talking about world-class guys, you know, Brian Caraway. These guys were scared to fight Diego Brandao because that's what he brings to the table. But T-City Ortega – isn't going to be scared of him. So it's going to be one of those things where is Brian Ortega as good as we think he is? You know, will he uh, take Diego Brandao into the later rounds where Brandao, you know, tends to gas out? Or is Diego Brandao going to be like, hey, this is my home and I'm going to knock you out in the first round? I would be shocked if Brian Ortega didn't finish this fight. Like, I would be shocked. What's the odds like on this one? The odds on this one currently, they have, wow, Brian's actually a big favorite. He's minus 230 with the comeback on Brandau at plus 190. Yeah, um, you lay the 230. Like, like that. this is the one for me that uh, is my best sort of confident lock. Um, and not just, again, you know, um, skill on skill is such a small part of it as as all these other elements start to come into play but but uh uh i think you nailed it with the description of the of the fighting skills ortega will you know he'll stand up to you 
And that's the risk. You know, this could be one of those ones where you, you tell your friend, look, dude, this Ortega, this is, this is the guy. And if you're wrong, he's laying flat in 45 seconds. But it's, that's the least likely scenario for me. Uh, he'll stand up to him. You know, he'll be calm in there. I, you know me, and you know that I am very hesitant to, to talk anything negative about fighters. And, and I defend that idea for, in a lot of ways. And uh, uh, I remember we were on with Pat, and I had a lot of fun. And I, I don't get a lot of chance to watch Pat's, see Pat's work, because you spend so much time making work that it's hard to consume work. Like, I literally just finished Daredevil. That's the only television show I've seen this entire year. <laughs> like, I didn't even get to watch all of Ryzen because I was wor just working on the Dillashaw Cruise breakdown. Like, there's, you are so busy working, sometimes you don't get to see your friends work. But uh, I saw something that he and uh, his buddy Connor on something that was out, and I, I wanted to listen to it. They, and it could be the, not them at all. Could be whoever from Bloody Elbow, and I like Bloody Elbow, I do go there quite a bit. Uh, when I get a chance um, to absorb my news because I like them and I kind of like its feeling. Um, whereas Junkie uh, has become kind of a race to the bottom, as many pop-up ads they can get kind of thing. But uh, I digress. Uh, but so I noticed on something, they were like, we're going to look at the best and worst aspects of Lawler and Condit's game. Now, again, that could have been whoever writes the headlines. And maybe, or maybe they wrote that just to get people to come in but there are no worst elements of of robbie lawler's game robbie yeah. lawler is the fucking welterweight champion of the world and if you're the if you're the champion of the world in 2016 you're the best welterweight there is now was matt hughes better for the era was george better or whatever maybe but the game has never been better the game of mixed martial arts has never been more complete and looking at somebody and saying well he has these boxing flaws I don't buy that. That is not true. And we can't, we can't look at that without taking into account the emotion that's happening, the stress that's happening, the conflict within the fight and within the fighter themselves. All of that is real. If, you, if you've ever seen you know, a top 10 guy hit pads, move his feet, grapple outside of a cage, they're not missing anything. So when you're looking at a downside to a fighter, you, you can say, in this fight, under these conditions, under this kind of stress, this happened. But you can't say he's not very good at this. And somebody, and again, I'm not picking, uh, I really enjoyed working with Pat. I thought he was great. And I, I've made a, I've wanted to make a point to listen to those guys' podcasts. It's just, it's a time issue as much as anything. Um, but when I saw that, I was like, I hope, he doesn't say well, or they don't say, well, Carlos Condit has deficiencies with his takedown defense. Because that's just not true. That's just not hey, a true. Robin, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm really glad you brought that up because yeah. when you take down Carlos Condit, it's actually a deficit to yourself because he gets right back up and you expend all your energy. And if by some stretch of the imagination he doesn't get up, he starts elbowing you from the bottom. So taking down Carlos Condit is a very bad idea. You take it from here, Rob. Exactly. And, and that is how the piece is put together. There is no, it's your choice of assembling the type of game that you want to play. And like, if you decide and you are you and you say, well, I want to 
invest that time. There's 22 hours in a week we can invest and we have 11 months of the year to do it. I want to choose to invest that during particular takedowns, I am going to train with the idea of defending to a certain point. Once I've defended as well as I can, if the wizard doesn't work, we're going to surrender that because from there I start a new web of, of games. You know, anyways, I, I didn't mean to get off on a tangent about anybody in particular, but uh, th this long tangent that I'm making about it's if you want to say a fight pass, you know, um, Macau card, these guys have deficiencies for sure. But you can't talk about top guys and their deficiencies. And the fight itself is where you're collecting not only people's skill sets, but their ability to implement them in game, in, at game time, under duress, with the difference of this. And there's so many fucking variables. And I prefaced all of that because I did want to say something negative. And, uh, and that is that the, the one area that I feel comfortable looking at and saying that from my point of view, there's an area that somebody seems to show a, a weakness, it's their mentality. And that's, and we, you, were, you referenced it earlier that there's certain situations where guys under stress, you know, whether the term used would look for the door or whatever. The mentality of fighting, the reality of it is, and this applies to every single one of us who watches fighting, every fan, None of us can do what Chris Weidman does. And we don't want to, at least today, if you dedicated your life, you started at 16, you dedicated your life till 28, maybe you could. But the, the ability to perform under that kind of pressure and danger and trauma, we cannot do that. We are, we are mentally not capable of doing that. And so we're also not capable of criticizing it too much. But when we recognize others that have the same challenges that we humans have, the same fears that we have, the same inability to, to really perform under pressure that we all know we have, I think it's okay to mention. And I think Diego Brandau has some of those. I think he is more of a regular person like the rest of us and less of a high-level game day performer. We've seen it with him messing weight. That, that applies. The missing weight is, is a, a sign of loss of focus, loss of commitment, inability to, to follow through on the things that need to be done. We've seen it with him pulling out of fights on late notice, including pulling out of a fight uh, in uh, Brazil against uh, Ortega. We've seen him freak out and blow you know, his entire energy system in the first two minutes of a fight. These are all things all of us would do. And those of us who fought at the low level and were not super successful, we've all done those things. We've seen Diego Brandau be a front runner. And Diego Brandau being terrifying early was a reflection of his own fear. His own fear drove him to be so intense that he overrode you. But you can't do that to the top guys. And I don't mean any of this to be critical, and I paint myself and every one of us normal fans with the same brush, but Diego Brandau is not yet, not currently, doesn't seem to be operating on a world-class level with his ability to perform in fights. And you face a guy like, like uh, <laughs> Brian Ortega, you're losing that fight. Yeah, and T-City, you know, he actually has more experience than people think because prior to him making his UFC debut, he got to go five hard rounds 
in the RFA. So this guy knows what the championship rounds are like. I'm pretty sure Diego Brandao actually doesn't know what the championship rounds are like. So that's another thing that I want to bring to the table. But we got to, you know, I could sit here and talk about Ortega all day, but we got to talk about Albert Tumenov, oh. Lorenz Larkin, dude. I mean, on paper, obviously, this is fireworks written all over it. It's very hard to pick against a Russian, period. But when you talk about a guy like Lorenz Larkin, I mean, I've been saying for a long time, this guy needs to drop to 170 pounds. I mean, this is the kind of badass Lorenz Larkin is. This guy was fighting at heavyweight, and, you know, he's a little chub, and, you know, he's uh, throwing spinning back kicks on these heavyweights. You know, he knocked out a, a K-1 veteran and Scott Lighty at heavyweight. You know, then he goes to 205. He's fighting guys like Volante. Then he goes to 85. He beats the current 70 champ, Robbie Lawler. Now he's at his natural weight class at 170 pounds, and he's knocking dudes out left and right. But this is a huge step up in competition. Albert Tumenov is your, you know, I don't want to say he's your prototypical Russian because he's not known for, you know, throwing you on your head and breaking your arm. He's actually known for his hands, which are super clean. You watch that performance against Juban, and Juban is, uh, you know, he's no easy test at all for anyone. Juban always puts up a fight. And Tumenov was so clean in there. He was so precise. He was so pinpoint the way he set up his jab to his cross, to his head kick. I mean, this guy is just, you don't fuck around with Albert Tumenov. Now, the thing with Lorenz Larkin is obviously he's probably going to be a little bit more dynamic and explosive. But I think that Albert Tumenov is mentally stronger. And if he starts to put a little pressure on Lorenz as the fight goes on, I do think he can knock out Lorenz Larkin. Now, obviously, there's always that threat with Lorenz because he's so explosive. He's so dynamic. He's also pinpoint as well. But I do think that Albert is the tougher guy here. And I think your mindset goes a long way in the sport. It can override things such as who's the better athlete, you know, who's more explosive, who's got a fucking higher vertical jump. I'm sure Lorenz Larkin has a higher vertical jump. I'm sure he can run a faster sprint than Albert Tumenov. But can he beat him in a fight on a Saturday night inside the UFC's octagon? I'm not convinced. I'm yeah. going with Tumenov. What do you think, Robin? And, yeah, I'm leaning towards Tumenov because his small adjustments are really good. You know, the little things he does. Like, man, the, the really good guys, like the, the guys of his type of skill, really just look great. And you and if you're just kind of sitting back and you're kind of hanging out with your friends, or you're not you're, – you're taking a break from trying to get so deep into the fight. You look and you just go, wow, that guy's really fucking good. Why is he so good? Why, why the fuck is he so good? And it's usually just little things. Moves his feet, small adjustments – kind of stay zoned in on you, you know? It's hard to shake him defensively really sound so he can stay where he wants to be, you know? Just, he's just a really, really fucking good striker. All of the things you're supposed to learn, all the things that, you know, if over time you're coaching somebody and you're coaching them, and there's not obviously in, in you know, MMA, kickboxing, or sort of free fight striking, there's not belts. But through that white belt, and then you get a guy's balance good, and he'd be that theoretical blue belt. Then you get his basic weapons kind of moving all right. You get him up to kind of a couple stripes on that blue belt. Get his head moving, get his feet moving, get him into a purple. Once you get into that brown and black belt level, it's little adjustments. It's not – it's the, 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 the perfect guys that get towards that kind of perfection. It's never that giant thing they do. It's always those little things, and they just end up looking so smooth. And what's neat about it is Larkin is kind of uh, – uh, 
there's a coach in Windsor named Reno Belcastro, and he coached Randa Marcos, who's in the UFC, and he coaches a couple of 15-year-old kids that people are going to be hearing a lot about that are really good. They go down and train at Duke Rufus's. And, and he compared this style of fighter to um, – there was a, a basketball player. Now, I don't know a lot of other sports, but he showed him to me on the internet. A basketball player, his nickname was The Mailman. You know who that was? Yeah. Are, are we talking? We're not talking about Malone, are we? Yeah. Yeah. And so he showed me footage of Carl Malone on on YouTube while I was calling some fight he had fighters in maybe three or four years ago. And he's like, "Look at this guy." And I said, "Okay, well, I don't analyze basketball, so I don't know what I'm looking at." And he said, "He just does everything a little wrong, in a way that's hard for you to stop him." And he's committed to doing the thing. So he's kind of learned a little different all his life. And he just kind of makes it work. Uh, and he was a, a superstar. And I guess he was a super accomplished guy. But if you asked other people, how is he technically? They'd, they'd, they'd be like, I don't know what it is. He just doesn't look all that smooth. But somehow he's really good. And that is usually sort of a, a development of he got small, small um, things that maybe you developed outside of the norm. But you found a way to make them work, and those guys. That, this is why this fight's so cool. Those guys are really fucking hard to fight. They're really hard to fight when they're doing quote wrong. And again, this is why I never say this guy's bad at this or his his you know cage work leaves a lot to be desired because they don't. You know, these are the top people. These are the best that history has ever made. We can't criticize their skills. This is as far as the skill has developed. You know. And uh, it's not a, it's not even an out of respect for the athlete thing. It's because it's true. These are the best fucking fighters in the world. We're not qualified to criticize them. We're qualified to compare them. And comparison isn't this guy's better or this guy's worse. It's like in these situations, sometimes this opportunity will arise for this guy. But so Larkin is what some people would have said developed, quote, wrong. But fuck, in 2015, in a kind of a very fluid, changing thing like fighting, quote, wrong, can be really hard to deal with. So that's why this fight's so cool. I tend to defer to the slick, fully evolved skill guy. So I'll go with the Russian because more often, if they're developed enough, that'll win the day. But when they lose, they're t guys like Lorenz Larkin, guys that, you know, you're fighting all these other really skilled guys and everybody in your gym is starting to raise their level and everybody's good at the things that you're good at and it makes you better at the little details. And then this guy comes in and you're like, fuck, I don't know why he threw his left hand from that weird angle. He just did. And he hit me in the chin, you know? And that kind of almost becoming so skilled, sometimes the guys who find a way, Uriah Faber used to fight, with the wrong technique, but he, but the right the right commitment to the technique and the right belief in himself. Larkin kind of has some of that, and he's really fun to watch. Man, as we're looking up this one, brother, like there's such some such great fights on this car. You know who also has some of that? The guy we were just talking about, Brian T. City Ortega. You know, obviously on the ground, yes. you know his technique is totally yes. up to par. But on the feet, it's a perfect example of what you're talking about because you know he's not the most technical striker but once you start eating you know three shots in a row to the chin and you're like how the hell did this guy hit me with that you know that's where the, the difference comes into play there 
You're right. You're right. And uh, it's another reason why he's fun. That is that is the one on the night where I would be shocked if if he lost his Ortega. But uh, yeah, it's like you're coming forward, and he's like, "Hey, man, when I bite down and I and I drive into the ball of my right foot and I throw this thing, it hits people. So I know it does. So I'm going to hit that guy with it. And if I get him to panic, like you said, and he tries to take me down, or even just clinches Ortega." Just clinch Ortega. He's going to out-hip you and out-position you. That, man, there's some good fights on this. Yeah, I, I'm doing a pre-show on Fight Network. We do it live up here in Canada. We do it at 7, so 7 Eastern time. So I'm going to miss Poirier and Duffy because wow. we'll be doing a live pre-show at that time. Um and Soto. Oh, no, I'm going to miss Soto Tanaka, too. Uh, also, we're not talking about this fight, but uh, Sheldon Westcott is a Canadian guy. He was on The Ultimate Fighter, and he's he's a real – I'm interested to watch him fight because he's a really good guy. And I don't know if he'd love hearing this, and it's but it's one of those things, you know, when we just talked about that one area where maybe you, you feel comfortable looking at it is he hasn't performed up to his ability in the gym – Physically, technically, he's very, 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 very skilled. He hasn't yet done that in a fight. I, and I think that's fair to say. And I think he'd, he'd probably be okay with that. Yeah, so, yeah. No Ken, uh, Sheldon Westcott or anything, but I view him the same way you view Diego Brandao, where I don't want to call him a front runner or anything like that because that's, that's a little bit disrespectful. Yeah. He's in the UFC and I'm not. So all the respect to Sheldon Westcott, but you know, from an analyst point of view or just a yeah. fan point of view, he yeah. is one of those guys where you know if he doesn't destroy you in the first round, yeah. things don't always go his way, and it yeah. is what it is. And and so the the last thought on that for both those guys or anybody else that you know that kind of topic will come up is much like you can get better at slipping punches. I truly think that's something that can be worked on. Yeah, you know, get your head moving. I really, you know, or move your feet or get under hooks or, or defend against a cage. You can get better at those things. I truly think you can get better at performing optimally. Um, but it takes a lot of work. And uh, I was very much a bad, bad game day performer. I didn't deal with stress well. I loved fighting and I loved training and I wanted so desperately to understand it, to do my job, but I was not good at it. Um, but by the last fight, I had learned, I worked really hard on it. I understood that some of these things are within your control, but you need to learn how to make them within your control. So it can be done. You know, we could be looking at Brandau in two years. Now it's work, hard work, sports psychology consultants, or just commitment to learning, or, you know, it's hard to learn these things on your own, just like it's hard to learn to kickbox on your own, but it can be done. There are guys who through just, a little luck finding the right books that started them in the right direction or being led by somebody, but these things can be improved upon. They really, really, really can. And uh, so when you say, you know, so-and-so might seem like a bit of a front runner or this guy has never shown the ability to be able to predict that he's going to perform well on a given night, two years from now, it would be an amazing, Hey, Cowboy Cerrone used to say that about himself. And yeah. then he went, after he worked on it, he went on an eight-fight winning streak or something insane like that. So it can be developed. It really can. Now, I got a question for you personally. Yeah. 
Now, obviously, you and I are both musicians, and being a musician means you have to perform in front of an audience. Now, I've, I'm a drummer, and I've been probably playing in you know the clubs and ATL since I was 15. And there's a different challenge when you're playing live. You know, yeah. you got the click track in your ears, but you also have to rock out and put on a show for the fans. And you know, there's always issues with the monitors and this and that. You got to perform. Now, fighting, you also have to perform. But the difference is that when I'm playing the drums, and all I got to worry about is the click track, and you know, just doing my thing, rocking out, looking good. I don't have to worry about a trained killer punching me in the face. Now, when I started training martial arts, I was like, well, I've always been a performer. You know, I got this show now. This is my new way of performing. But I used to be a performer with the drums. And I was thinking, well, you know, I want to have a couple amateur fights before I turn 30 because I've always been a performer. And maybe the stage fright will be a little different. You know, you always get nervous before you perform no matter what. But some people, they rise to the occasion. Other people, it shuts them down. So I want to know from your perspective, because you've been a musician and a fighter, you know, what, what was it like, you know, walking out to the ring compared to walking to the stage? Well, the very first fight that I had, the biggest thing about your first fight is that your second fight is way harder because you know what's coming now. The, your first fight, at least for me, was wonderful. And I got a concussion. I got a cut on my eyeball. I had, free, I, I had um, nerve damage to my face that lasted about five months and um, a week into it, I thought maybe I was numb for life. And, and my brain was like, or my reaction at the time was like, well, as long as my face doesn't sag, which will affect my ability to do television, which was something I was starting to work in at the time, uh, it'll be something that will always remind me of this great experience. But um, uh, leading up to it, as I walked out, there was about 3,500 people in the venue. And I remember walking out and I had the same feeling that I had when I performed, which was awesome. There's a big crowd. So if we saw a big crowd when you're playing with your band, that invigorates you. And when I saw a big crowd when I was going out to fight, I was like, great, because I had been trained to think that was a good thing. I think a lot of other people, and then it hit me, and it was just luck because I would now through study and research and working on, you know, working on a, a sports psychology book. It's going slow because of my fault, because of my job, but with a professor that's a good friend on the um, on uh, uh, combat sports psychology. So I'm learning through that, and then I do a podcast with David Mullins, who works with the SBG team. He's their sports psychology consultant. So I'm learning a lot about that. Now I understand that it is within your control how you have the perspective of your fight. But at that time, I was just lucky. I went out, I felt good about how there being a big crowd, and through luck or good fortune, uh, I thought to myself, oh, this is going to negatively affect my opponent. He's never been in front of a big crowd, and I have. Yeah, and also, you know, you can even have an adrenaline dump when you're playing music live because I remember when I was like, uh, you know, 18 years old and I'm about to play at the Masquerade, which is, you know, one of the ATL's premier venues and I'm getting fucking pumped, I'm going crazy. Then after the second song, I'm fucking gassed out. I'm just playing the drums. I'm not punching yeah. people in the face. So I need to drink oh a couple of waters. So I had to learn how to pace myself playing music in front of people. I can only imagine what it's like having to fight another trained killer in front of people. After you throw the first couple of punches, if you take that deep breath, you realize from the time I was warming up in the back to the time I went to the other back where I saw him warming up and it crossed my mind, holy shit, he looks good. 
it would shouldn't cross your mind, but in your first few fights, it may. Then the walk, he was introduced, and then I walked out, and then they were saying some other shit, and then we were looking at each other, and now I've thrown two punches. I don't know if I've taken a breath in all that time. You know what I mean? As oh, yeah. It's all happening. Now, by my ninth fight, which was, I had a couple of good performances. I had some terrible, terrible performances too. But that's why now I understand it a little bit more. It's very valuable for me. You know, um, I wish that I got to have one more. And it would have, I would have felt great about saying, I had 10 fights and I won half of them. That would feel so good to say. But realistically, I had nine fights and I won just slightly less than half of them. And when I lost, I had failure. It's not like and, – and there's failure where you fought your brains out and lost, and then there's failure where you just fucking failed. And But those experiences were important for me because now when I'm looking at and weighing out what happens, you know, I didn't – I never quit. But I lost vision and I shut down out of terror or horror or almost fainted. And I had those experiences. So I know what it is. I know that doesn't mean that guy said, I don't want to fight today. His brain or body shut him down and said, I can't do it. Rory McDonald's brain and body shut him down because his nose had melted. But uh, Brandau on a fight where you're like, he didn't seem quite done. His nervous system said, we can't handle the trauma. We can't handle the pressure. You're going to faint right now unless you cover up until Herb pulls you off. And that experience lets, lets you understand you're human. If you can come back from it and learn to perform really well and learn to control all those things, then you have a comparison point. You've done both and you understand it. And because of that, I think I have a, you know, you don't, it is not true that you have to fight professionally to be a good analyst. That is not the truth. But, but it certainly, does, certainly does not fucking hurt. I don't know how it would hurt you to be able to understand that the difference between being free on a night and in a true flow state of biochemical you know, brain activity being perfect for performance or second-guessing everything, not even remembering the walk there, you know, being hit once and you can't see, being exhausted and you can't do things, all of those experiences certainly do help you. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know how we started on this conversation. I love that we, we you know, we just can go wherever with while we're chatting. But, uh, but uh, yeah, the performing, um, the pressure of it is pretty intense. In last thought on it is, in theory, to perform at your best you need to be in the best state you've been in while drumming. Yes, there's the consequences of brain injury, damage, failure, embarrassment, loss of money, all of those things. But somehow you have to have not have, if you don't have any of those with you, you'll perform better. You know, people who are afraid to get knocked out fight like people who are afraid to get knocked out, and they're more likely to get knocked out. And then you got fighters like Matt Brown, who's not scared to get knocked out, and he yeah. just goes out there and he puts on, he shines. He puts on the kind of performances that the fans want to yeah. see. And firstly, yeah. I want to commend you for stepping in the ring. You know, I know that personally, internally, it might be like, oh, well, I only want a certain amount of fights. But the way I look at it is, hey, you had the balls to step inside the ring with another man that was trying to put you unconscious. And you did it, win or lose. That, that's, not, that's not the issue. Half the battle is stepping inside the ring itself. And that's what you did, my friend. So I commend you for it. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, the, the, you know, you, you learn from 
of these fights, but I also learn from and comparing good and bad experiences. And there, you know, one, there's so many little cliches that, that we learn from watching fighters. And a good one is we're either winning or we're learning. Yeah. And I did a lot of learning. You know, I did a lot of learning. I, I was not a fighter, but I fought. But I am an analyst, and I do love looking at fights. I love breaking them down. I've spent probably 24 of the last 72 hours breaking down Dillashaw Kruger, 48 hours of work to do, and I love every second of it. And I couldn't have done it without those experiences. Hell yeah, man. And we all love what you put out. And also, back on the talk of Tumenov versus Larkin, you know, there's an interesting backstory because – Tumenov's actually been calling out Larkin for a long time, and not a lot of people know that. If you go to Tumenov's Instagram, I know it's in uh, in Russian, but if you click that translate button, he's been calling out Larkin for a while. And I was listening to my buddy Adam Hunter on the MMA Roasted podcast. Yeah, yeah he, Adam's the man. Fucking love Adam. He's he's the man. But anyways, he had Alan Juban on the show who just fought Tumenov and. Alan Juban said that Larkin's coaches were hitting him up, asking him for advice on two men off. So there's a very interesting psychological dynamic going on in this fight. You got the one guy who's wanted it for a while, who sees something in Lorenz Larkin's game that he can exploit. And then you got Lorenz Larkin who's like, well, I got this fucking scary Russian in front of me. Why don't I go ask the last guy he knocked out for some, uh, for some tidbits? Yeah, I like it. There is a lot going on there. It's a man. You start getting into the middle of this card, like, you know, it's pretty easy when you've sort of been distracted, looking ahead at fights, or, you know, there was uh, Ronda, then Connor, then Christmas, and all this kind of stuff. But once you, and then you're like, oh man, Condit's going to fight Lawler. That's going to be amazing. Or, uh, and uh, the heavyweights, that's going to be great. But then you start digging into the, the mid fights on this, and you get into these, and there's some great stuff. Absolutely. And speaking of great stuff, we got the co-main event of the evening. And this is a very interesting fight because we got the new age heavyweight in Stipe Miocic, and he's taking on the old lion in Andrei Arlovsky. Now, Andrei already won the heavyweight championship. There was a point in his career when he lost four fights in a row. Everyone's saying, man, this guy's got to retire. He can't take a punch anymore. But you know what? Credit to Andrei. He, uh, he sacked up and he said, look, man, I still have something left in the tank and you know other people believe in him when he didn't even believe in himself and i'm referring to greg jackson and mike winklejohn they saw something they were like dude you're not done yet we can make some adjustments just like they did to Overeem. Overeem just yeah. knocked out fucking dos santos and that's a different story that's more of a I, i'm like what the hell are you doing junior trying to trade kicks with Overeem instead of throwing your hands that got you the title but that's a different story for a different time as far as andre and Stipe are concerned you know they're they both like to do a little bit of the you know i don't want to call it point fighting because they're heavyweights they can knock you out but if michael bisbing was the heavyweight he'd be like Stipe. if you know what i'm saying he's got very good cardio very good voluminous output and uh, he can take you to the ground if he wants, or he can piece you up on the feet. But with Andre, he's that old school OG. And every time you count him out, he comes out here and he wins. Now, I'm going to just grab a little water real quick. But, uh, Robin, the floor is yours. Tell the fans about Andre Arlovsky versus Steve Miocic. All right. Well, while you're getting water, I'm going to get a beer. But, uh, you know, Steve to me, is one of these heavyweights who fights like a much smaller guy. You know, it's like if they had, uh, if Team Alpha Male kind of had a, a heavyweight, it would kind of be him. Like he's going to mix it up. 
better than anybody other than Cain Velasquez. You know, that sort of deceptive up and down kind of vibe. And uh, I think that's what he'll try to do with Arlovsky. Arlovsky has that timing, that Fedor kind of concept of timing the one punch. Cheers. Also, uh, while we're at it, I'll continue. But uh, thanks, Serge, for uh, popping up on Twitter and saying hello. And openly ignorant Sante, um, an MMA fighting where Brandau says he's rediscovered that love of fighting. And we will see if that's true. Um, it could be true. But a lot of the time, I mean, what else is he going to say? Yeah, no, I still hate fighting. It still scares me. So, But, uh, but yeah, Stipe Miocic for me is probably a top five guy, legit top five guy. Um, you know, against Dos Santos, he looked amazing. Amazing. Yeah, like Dos Santos also, while we're at it. Uh, I know uh, uh, Daniel just mentioned that uh, – uh, he got knocked out by Overeem, but man, between the dust, uh, the um, the Stipe fight and the two Kane fights, that's a lot of rounds of a lot of getting beat up, man. And at heavyweight, I don't know. Uh, but personally, I think um, I love this fight. I absolutely love it. I kind of think that Stipe Miocic will uh, just be sort of too modern and too evolved, but at the same time, it's like sort of the theoretical modern evolved guy against, and, and Miosic very much is and can look like this, against Arlovsky, who's got great timing and will kind of suck you into one. So I almost, I mean, I feel like Miosic is in a position to do it. It's also one of these weird ones where it's like, for whatever reason, you know, at heavyweight, people don't kind of jump on the Miosic train. And uh, if he does beat Arlovsky, they may have to, but I don't even know if he would end up fighting for the title because he doesn't seem to have gathered up, you know, a legion of fans. And as much as I kind of hate acknowledging the truth, it's like fighting is about popularity too. Yeah, and Rob, it's interesting you bring that up. And you know how earlier I said he might be the Michael Bisbing of heavyweight? I truly believe if heavyweight was more stacked – that Stipe would be the guy that everyone's calling out. You notice how yeah. every single middleweight's like, I want to fight Michael Bisping because yeah. they have this illusion that Michael Bisping is an easy fight, which he's not. Where did anyone get that idea? Yeah, they all, I don't every single one of them asks for him. Yeah, they all think Michael Bisping is an easy fight, and then they're eating, you know, 10 punches in a row, covering up, looking for the ref, and they're wondering, oh, shit, maybe it wasn't an easy fight. In my opinion, I view Stipe in the same light as I view Michael Bisping. Like I said, you know, he's got almost that hit-and-run style, very good cardio, voluminous output, and I truly believe if the heavyweight division was more stacked, kind of like the middleweight division, people would be calling Stipe out left and right because he's got that style. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I think it's also like, oh, this guy's – you know, a top five guy, and and uh, yeah, I think the biggest thing that he brings, you know, and when I've I've sat down, there's a thing I'll throw it up on Twitter right now if I can find it. Um, I sat down with him and chatted with him. I don't know if he talked about it in this conversation or not, but uh, that day he did about how interested he is in learning concepts and ideas that trick other people. You know what I mean? That like that trick his opponent. So it isn't just, oh, I got to land my right hand. It's like, see, I got to land my right hand. Oh, just kidding. I'm going to take you down. 
oh wait, I'm not taking you down, I'm hitting you with an uppercut as you resist it. That simple concept, that, that's one of the areas that at heavyweight, you know, we, we mentioned earlier today, the heavyweight game's a, a very different game. Like it really is fun to watch, everybody loves it. And I do too, but it's different. It's like we were referencing how the, the, the women's game has evolved differently because it, it, it you know, evolved, became a, a feature in fighting later. So it would follow some of the same. It'll happen faster than it did in men because there is, you know, we're in a modern te technological age where they'll learn faster. Heavyweight's the same thing. It's a little bit behind. But that sort of real deceptiveness combination between up and down, left and right, timing issues, you know, drawing you in, making you chase and intercept you, all those things that we'll see Carlos Condit do or try to do, um, Stipe Miocic is trying to do. He goes and he watches Demetrius Johnson and goes to his coaches and says, hey, how do I make this work? Like, he's a really smart guy. Um, but having said that, Andre Arlovsky can fucking drill you in the face and you're unconscious. You know, like, and that's why, that's why this fight is so cool. Um, I feel like it's Miosic's time, but that's more a feeling than anything. I mean, uh, go watch his Dos Santos fight, man. He lost, lost three rounds to two, but man, did he kill it. You oh, know, yeah. it fantastic. He put up a very valiant effort in that fight. And, you know, obviously you brought up some very amazing points. But one thing I want to talk about with these heavyweights is that unlike the lighter divisions, as you get older, you actually get better. You look at the current heavyweight champion, Fabrizio Vaikavalo-Werdum, 38 years old, and he's wearing the title. I'll tell you this right here, right now, in half the battle. There's not going to be any 38-year-old, 155-pounders winning the title anytime soon. That's true. But uh, would it blow your mind to see uh, Arlovsky find a way to win this fight, Frank Mir win his next fight, and two former UFC champions fight, and the winner fight for a title. That wouldn't blow my mind. Well, I'll tell you this, Robin. Let's say Arlovsky wins this fight, and Werdum wins against Kane again. Who would have thought that we would have seen Werdum versus Arlovsky for the yeah. second time? Because if you remember the first fight, it was one of the worst fights in UFC history. <laughs> but now they're both at the pinnacle of the game. It's crazy how the sport has evolved so much. Yeah, it's true. It is very, very true. And... Uh, you know, they're both, I mean, that's that's an aspect of the heavyweight game that's been developing over time is uh, the ability to be 250 pounds and manage your energy output. Like your use of energy systems, we mentioned how smart Faraz is. Faraz, I was sitting at Fight Network, we had him on as a, as a guest analyst and I had a good friend, Jeff, uh, Jeff Gervitz, who is a elite strength and conditioning coach. And they were chatting about, you know, use of energy and, and recovery and, uh, you know, all of those kinds of energy system kind of elements. And Faraz swears up and down that the ability to kind of manage your output is all skill development. He's like, yeah, sure, it helps if you're in better shape or you do anaerobic training, you do sprint recover, you know, because you are still burning sugars in your body. That's still the nature of what it is. But it's like, it's skill development. And that stuck with me because some of the best guys who are able to look great late in the fight aren't the fittest guys. They aren't the guys doing the hardest strength and conditioning work. They just develop that ability and that the skill development of managing your energy systems is managing yourself, managing your emotion, managing your choices, managing your output, 
uh, resting at appropriate times, being skilled enough to for you to rest while I'm working really hard. And that's fascinating stuff. And that's the areas that are carrying over to heavyweights. Stipe Miocic can do that because he's a skill guy. Verdum, you know, the, the big thing about Verdum and uh, Kane too, we're going to find out if really elevation was that big a deal. Oh, yeah. I, I got word doom there. But, you know, obviously you brought, you bring up some very good points about how guys got to learn how to be efficient and how to manage, you know, their output. But on the topic of strength and conditioning coaches, what do you think about this guy, Nick Curson? you know, RDA strength and conditioning coach? He is one, you know, uh, very smart and unique individual. He's actually taking – do you remember when BJ Penn was the lightweight champion and he was yeah. training under the Marinovich brothers? Yeah. yeah like the scariest motherfucker you've ever seen in your life well rda strength and conditioning coach nick curson i'm actually going to interview him on half the battle next Whoa. week so for all the fans listening now you just heard it right here right now please include me in the tweet because i'm going to be watching that please include me when you tweet that out if you can i'll retweet it but i also want to watch it absolutely and his uh you know philosophy is actually very similar to what the Marinovich brothers did with BJ Penn. And if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but I do think he is a protege of the Marinovich brothers. But I will find out more in depth when I sit down with Nick Curson. Yeah. But I, I got to know your thoughts on Nick because he's incredible, right? Yeah, I'm going to be watching that. Like I've, I've you know, touched on or absorbed a little bit about what he's doing. But like I was saying earlier, it's the, the hard trick when you're – wanting to do a lot of content creation is what they call it but re which is really like analyzing a lot is it's hard to absorb information and there's a there's a critical mass point if you're trying to get better every day to get better every day you need to bring information in and if you're putting information out all the time you're going to stall so i haven't seen as much of his but i'm very interested now that you mention it anyone who's pioneering new ideas or pushing new directions in that i mean even uh Ido Portal uh, and Conor McGregor, it's going to be a lot of guys training with some yoga teacher with a man bun. You know what I mean? You look and you... <laughs> I'm, you sorry to, I'm sorry to cut you off, Robin, but I got to say this. If, if uh, Conor would have lost, the amount of shit that Ido Portal would have gotten would have been through the roof. For sure. For sure he would have. But uh, now that he won, hey, man. One out of 10 fighters, one out of 15 fighters. Hey, man, with this movement thing, we got to do this movement thing. The problem is you can't jump ahead. Like, whatever it is you do, there's a natural amount of information that leads to the next level. So you need to let, like, the concept of leveling up, I think, comes from video games or, like, or like uh, you know, role-playing games or whatever. But... You don't level up without the necessary experience. So the idea is like, I want to, oh, this guy's winning. I guess the secret must be man bun yoga guys. It's <laughs> not a yoga guy. I'm simplifying. But, but it's not. It, what it is is a natural progression of understanding to connect your body and mind in a way that starts with a white belt and a blue belt. And, you know, Portal coming in is a purple belt or a brown belt. Now, I think Connor, because of his his view of, of um, learning would say he's only a blue belt in that because that allows him to set the ceiling of where he can reach with his connection between mental strength, focus, confidence, and freedom of movement. That's where he's based.
section of there is a point at which you go too far and you wander out into the forest and it's all fucking bullshit. I think Connor's years away from that. But that happens to every fucking great artist. You know, it happens to the, it happens, I don't care if you're the Beatles, you're a painter, you make the most amazing rugs in the world. Anderson Silva. You're Anderson Silva. That's a great example. That's a great fucking example. The same thing that had him beat Forrest Griffin uh, had him lose to Chris Weidman. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're right. Uh, but the thing about Connor and the thing about stacking knowledge on knowledge is if Frank Zappa, who was a musician, who was an experimental musician, went too fucking far, the next stage can go, hey, Frank Zappa went too far. How do I watch out that I don't have to do that? And Conor McGregor now has enough of a stack of enough uh, like uh, a, a large enough history of fighters who have gone too far and martial artists who have gone too far, Icarus flying too close to the sun, that he can at least be aware of that fact. But uh, we are digressing into some weird areas and we're not even under the influence of THC or anything. Not yet. No, but uh, Robin, you know, it's interesting you brought up uh, how people need to master the, the movement and their bodies. You know, Conor McGregor, he said a great quote. I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but it was along the lines of, I'm just a white belt and everyone else hasn't even started. That's amazing because I, I've never heard that quote. But like I said, I my view of it was he would like to think he's very early on. What that does is opens up eternal uh, like development. And the whole point, his whole point is that he believes that in constant improvement is possible. There could be, if he evolves in uh, past the point of just landing one impressive knockout and predicting a few things and selling a million pay-per-views and, and gets to next levels of development, there are people who write, you know, Anthony Robbins books and there are people who do motivational things and The Secret and all that kind of shit who will use him as an example. Because all the guy is is the guy who fucking believes he can do anything in the world and acts on that, acts under that belief and figures the key to that is outwork everyone else and outlearn everybody else and out-sacrifice everyone else. And I am just a guy who does a job that I like, but that's kind of been my approach the last few years is I'd really, really like to be able to have this job and have a happy wife and live in a nice home and have a good life. And to do that, all I got to do is just try to get better every day. That's all anybody who's succeeding is trying to do. And Conor McGregor is doing that. And what's really cool is whether you want to pay attention or not, call him an idiot or call you and me a nut hugger or whatever, he's laying it out there. You can choose to hate him or you can choose to go, wait a second, a Conor McGregor or a Chris Weidman or a Demetrius Johnson can inspire us to work hard at what we do. If the, Conor McGregor is just a fucking guy. He's just some guy from Ireland. All he did was believe and work really, 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 really hard. And that's what he's telling everybody. Choose to, do, to look at it, admire it, be inspired by it and learn from it, or choose to go, fuck him, I can't wait till he gets knocked out. That's up to you. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean?
Definitely, man. And you know, I don't know how you feel about it, but for me personally, I'm actually a big fan of, you know, the secret and Tony Robbins and shit like that, because it really teaches you, you know, to believe in yourself. And there's this girl I was seeing for a while and I try to show her the secret and she's like, you know, this is fucking bullshit because you know, are you trying to tell me that you have to really believe in it for it to happen? And I'm like, yes, you do yeah. have to really believe in it because look, if I didn't believe that I could have, you know, top 10 UFC fighters or champions on my show, then I wouldn't have them on my show. If I didn't believe that I could have them, you wouldn't even call them if you didn't believe it. Exactly. If I didn't think I could have Robin Black on my show, I wouldn't have Robin Black on my they show. Ask. But the fact of the matter is, I truly believe in myself. I truly believe in this sport. I just, it's, it, it flows through me. It's a passion I have. You know, every day when I wake up, I think about MMA. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm, I, man, I know what you're saying. Yeah, and I'm pursuing that passion. So when she was like, you know, you truly got to, if, if you truly got to believe in it, then it's bullshit. I'm like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You don't really understand, you know, the whole meaning behind the secret. Yeah, yeah. My, I haven't read that particular one, but uh, anything that points you in the direction of a positive perspective is really good. The, my, to me, from what I understand about the secret is it's only the start. Because if you believe something is possible, like a perfect example. So who's been some of the most famous um, UFC fighters you've had on your, your show? Uh, Benil Dariush is uh, okay. probably the most highest ranked guy. Yeah. So uh, Dariush, if you didn't believe you could get him, you wouldn't have emailed, you wouldn't have tweeted him or emailed him or uh, asked for his number. Why the fuck would you bother going through all of that? If you didn't believe it was possible exactly you wouldn't and if you didn't it's not possible that's just simple and but a lot of I mean shit man like whatever it is you do like and I'm again we, we were talking about the fact that I fought and, and, and me looking back at fighting it was a, a learning experience for me to do this thing that I love. And I also loved the, the journey of it and I learned a million things from it. But I was th a 38 year old guy who was mocked and made fun of by everybody in the Canadian fight scene because I said, I'm gonna go fight. 37 or 38 when I started seriously training for it. If I didn't think it was possible, I could, or I thought, well, maybe I could do it. The first 20 people who made fun of me on the internet, maybe I'd have quit. Or the first guy who beat me up in the gym because he wanted me to quit, maybe I'd have quit. Or the, the, the people who you know, tried to heel hook my foot off, I'd have quit. There's a million reasons to quit. The reason you don't quit is because you believe it's possible. And this is not applicable to a podcast or fighting or MMA. This is applicable to every fucking thing in the world. And like, you know... I, I married a beautiful girl that I really like is my partner. If I didn't think she would have said yes to me asking her out, I wouldn't have asked her out. So, I mean, it's, it's not even a debatable thing that believing something is possible is the start of doing anything. That's not even up for debate because if you don't believe it's possible, you won't even do it. Absolutely. And I, you know, I don't believe in too many things, but I believe in myself and I believe in the law of attraction. You know, speaking of that girl that told me the secret was bullshit before I even started dating her, you know, I told one of my friends like, dude, that's the hottest fucking girl I've ever seen in my life. She's going to be mine. And then, you know, it turned out to ha to work out. And then, you know, yeah. you know, you, you know how it goes, man, but we got to talk about Carlos yeah. Condit. 
person yeah, yeah. is Robbie Lawler because we were talking about the movement coach and yep. Carlos Condon's got a movement coach. And man, the way he looked against Tiago Alves, the way he goes in and out of range, I was like, dude, he's been working on some shit. And, uh, you know, he took over a year off, almost two years off because of the torn ACL. So you would have thought that, you know, maybe he had a little ring rust. And man, he looks so calm, composed. It was like a. He was in that peak mental state, that peak performance state. That's something that uh, Tony Robbins talks about a lot, how to get to that peak performance state. Now, the thing with Robbie Lawler, you can never count out Robbie Lawler. I mean, Robbie Lawler, you know, this is a guy who a couple years back people were saying, oh, he's a journeyman, he should retire. And Robbie, you know what? When no one else believed in him, he believed in himself. He put his nose to the grindstone. He bit down on his mouthpiece. He put together a win streak, and he won the UFC world title. My only concern when you know making a pick for a fight like this is that Robbie Lawler's had many uh, five-round wars back-to-back. We're talking two five-round wars with Johnny Hendricks. We're talking one with Matt Brown, one with uh, Rory McDonald you know, just a couple months back. So, I mean – I never question his mindset. I never question his will to win. I just question how will his body hold up after so many five-round wars. Yeah, especially, wow. Okay, so name me, you know, three or four of the other top five or six uh, welterweights in the world. Name me the next. uh, Rory, who just went through a war, so let's put him on the shelf. Matt Brown. Matt Brown, Hector Lombard. Iron. Tyron, Maya. Yeah. Either of these guys right now beat all those guys. Like, and Johnny Hendricks was one of the main guys who didn't like that this fight took place. But um, Johnny Hendricks doesn't seem to be operating from a positive perspective anyways, while we're on the topic of sort of mentality. He's kind of like, well, it's owed to me, whatever. When you look at, at – um, the uh, the first Johnny Hendricks fight with Lawler, it was very, very – that was the turning point. So before that, Lawler comes into the UFC. He wins three fights, uh, including uh, decisioning uh, McDonald. Then he loses to Hendricks for the title. It's, that could have been it. You fought for the UFC title and you lost. That was the turning point for him. If you look back, it was round five. And in round five, he did not push through. It got tough, and he couldn't. It was Hendricks who pushed through. Now, let's go back even further. Hendricks lost to George. In round five, he couldn't push through. George did. So he would had that experience of being on the wrong side and understanding, fuck, it's only four more minutes, and I could win this fight. So when he and Lawler met, he had had that experience, been on the losing end. He pushed through, and he won. Lawler the second time. He went in, I think he beat Ellenberger or somebody. Uh, yeah, he beat up Ellenberger. And, and Matt Brown, which was a great fight. It showed that was a fucking fight yeah. and a half. And just for the record, you know, I don't often say, oh, this guy's my favorite fighter. You know, I, I'm pretty uh, – what, what's the word I'm looking for here? I'm pretty – Unbiased? Yeah, yeah. Some, so, somewhat unbiased, you know, because it's hard to be fully unbiased when you're a fan of the sport. But listen, Matt Brown, I mean, how can you not love watching that guy fight? But yeah, take it take it from there, man. Yeah. Um, so he beats Matt Brown in, a, in just a motherfucker of a fight. And he beats him with technique. It's like, I'll stand up to you and I'll out-technique you. So you're, you're asked to bring as much heart and fucking intensity as Matt Brown brings, and you do. 
So if that's equal, it becomes about our, our, our technique and he out techniques him, which is amazing. So then he goes back and faces Hendricks again. Now it comes down to round five and he fucking stands up. He owns him. He wants it more. He makes the big statement. He wins the fight. Pretty, pretty safe to say you've, if Matt, Matt Hughes puts the belt on him. You've reached the pinnacle. You set a goal for yourself. You've reached it. Cool. Should go out and enjoy. You probably made, you know, six or eight hundred thousand dollars on pay-per-view things. You reached it. Great. Everybody applauds when you get to the gym. Your friends are thrilled. You've got a fucking UFC belt. You waited your whole life for that. You probably reached your peak, you know? And if that was your goal for yourself, you're probably going to go down. Unless you set new goals. And then you see him fight Robbie Lawler, and you're, or, or you see him fight Rory McDonald, and you're like, holy fuck, he set new goals. He set – this to him is it like some guys become a black belt, and they in their mind think of themselves as white belts. They, they literally – that is the start of their journey, the best guys, the Marcelo Garcias. Robbie Lawler became the UFC champion, and he reset his goals so that he is just starting his career. And against Rory McDonald, you've never seen him better. Never fucking seen him better. And that fight taught him about things about himself that humans haven't learned about themselves since they fought on battlefields. You know what I mean? With swords on fucking horseback. Like that hasn't, that, that lesson of who you are and what you're capable of, very few men have learned that lesson. So that's fucking terrifying. <laughs> you know what I mean? 100%. Think of that. And then you've got Carlos Condit, who truly has had that. And, and when I was down in Vegas, we, you know, we got a number of opportunities to go interview you know, all the, the fighters that are main eventing for the next while. I got McGregor before his fight, and I got Frankie before and after his fight. And there was a lot of really – we got a lot of real cool exposure to people. A lot of my time, I just take notes. So I'm not even filming interviews. I'm just – Hey, Uriah can ask you some questions and I'm just absorbing information. So with Condit, I didn't have a camera. I went over and I asked him tons of questions. Cause and like you're, you're saying Matt Brown is your favorite fighter. You'd be hard pressed to find a fighter that I admire more than Carlos Condit in the whole world ever. So I'm like, Hey Carlos, great to meet you. And he was very kind of, he'd probably seen the breakdown I did on him or I've done two or three on him. And I have a feeling, I can just kind of tell. He was like, oh, I'm going to give this guy a bit of time, you know, and that's a, that feels nice when you see that. Um, and I could have been wrong. He just might be a really nice guy. So I take some great notes, you know, about um, Lawler, and you can see how he's waited his whole life for a fight like this against a guy at his peak, you know? So I haven't even got into the, the, the technical shit yet, just who they've become. Like, what is a Robbie Lawler after fucking his face is ripped open and he stands up to Rory McDonald and puffs his chest out in an alpha behavior, almost like a few we've ever seen in fighting, and then finishes him in the fifth. That's a whole other thing. And Condit has waited his whole life to fight something like that. And then I went back after <laughs> round two while these 12 other like people are asking him questions. You know, I asked him about some of the technical lines of what they did. And uh, then I went back and asked him about his mindset because I've been commentating some of his old Pancrase fights. And he's gone in as this sort of animalistic 
killer until it's over and then he bows and he's a respectful martial artist. I tried to understand that. I basically is what I'm saying is I stalked Carlos Condit for about fucking, we had about an hour and a half with 15 U, uh, UFC champions and, and contenders. And I probably spent half of it or more chatting with just Condit, Cruz and, um, and Demetrius who are my, the fighters I want to learn from. And in the end of that, I came away with it going mentality-wise, we've rarely seen a fighter more prepared for battle than Robbie Lawler. And Carlos Condit's been a natural-born killer waiting his whole life for one of those. And, like, it blows your mind. <laughs> like, it's fucking, yeah. like, you can't even... This is going to be... We've, we've seen a different level of combat. Lawler was in one of those fights with Rory. I kind of feel like like Weidman and Rockhold was one of those fights. And I think this is another one. Yeah, and this is one of those fights where it's almost hard to predict what's going to happen aside from the fact that it's guaranteed excitement because, I mean, those two, not only have they always been killers and always been some of the most exciting fighters on planet Earth, but what they've evolved into recently, it's like what you're talking about. Like, like what you're talking about, you know, with Robbie Lawler, he's just that mindset he has. I mean, you, you can uh, cut this guy's face off and he doesn't give a fuck. He'll, he'll stand up to you and be like, what's up, man? He'll spit blood at you and then come back in the next round and take your face off. And with uh, Carlos Condit, I don't know if I want to say he's more cerebral than Lawler because, I mean, Lawler's a champion for a reason. You can't say that the champion's not a cerebral guy, but Carlos Condit is a very intelligent human being, and, you know, he's paying attention to different aspects of, the, of his game. Obviously, he's working with the movement coach now, like we previously alluded to earlier. You saw the big changes he made in that Tiago Alves fight. Now, Tiago Alves, obviously we know him and Robbie are at two different points in their careers, but still, no one's ever knocked out Tiago Alves like that. No, And I know someone watching is going to be like, oh, but John Fitch upkicked him t uh, 20 years ago. It's like, come on, dude. No one's ever ran through Tiago Alves like that. Yeah. Usually when guys beat him, they either get their ass kicked for the entire fight and then catch him in a guillotine choke like Campman did, or you know they do what GSP did, which is wear him down, yeah. If fight fight him without fighting him, if that makes yeah. sense. But yeah, Jordan was beating him up though. If you go back, Jordan was beating him up till he hit Jordan in the body. It was a brilliant fight. We were talking about Jordan Mean early. I lost a lot of money on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I Jordan was fucking looking great. Um, yeah, there's so much going on here, man. Like, you know, you talk about so everything we've been talking about is who they are and where they are right now, and that's. That matters big time. Um, it matters because they're so skilled. If one of them, you know, I thought like we, we mentioned Weidman and Rockhold, and I mean this with the utmost of respect uh, because Weidman's one of my guys. Um, but there was a crack in him that we'd never seen before, ever, ever, ever. A crack in his confidence. And there's nothing in either of these two guys. And, and that might have been the difference. It really might have been. And we'd never seen him make a crazy mistake like that spinning kick. We'd also never seen him lose a position. Hey, you're on the bottom. That's okay. We can win this position and sweep him or get back to our feet. You know, so there was a crack in his mentality. And, uh, you know, uh, it's something he'll repair. Uh, but there's nothing, there's no crack in either of these guys. And there's not going to be, and it's going to be a crazy fight. So it's going, going to come down to who can break who physically. You're not going to break them mentally. You're not going to back them up. You're not going to shake them. You're not going to get them 
discouraged or flat-footed or hesitant and then beat them up. You're going to fucking fight. They're going to fight each other. I don't think I asked Carlos about, you know, strategy and stuff. And he was talking about different layers and different ranges. And I think he'll want to change it up a lot. So I don't think, you know, some people are like, oh, man. To this day, they were impressed still asking him about Diaz. You know, hey, are you still bothered by, uh, like, you know, that Diaz fight? And he's like, yeah. When people talk about it, they, they bug me about it forever, you know. I fought the way I fought. It was a smart way to, to win the fight. And, you know, if people didn't understand it, I don't really care. And he didn't get frustrated. And I don't know him personally. Although if you feel like you do over time, you know, know these guys. But he, in there, he was frustrated by that. Uh, but despite that, I still think he's smart enough to win however he's got to win. I just think that uh, he knows you can't win against Lawler that way. You have to engage him. And you have to show as many different, as three-dimensional as possible. We're up and we're down. Although Carlos doesn't really threaten to take down. And Lawler hasn't been taken down in a long time. Rory was deep in on his hips and he couldn't get him down. Oh, so, man. That fucking sprawl was like the best sprawl I've ever seen yeah. in my life, dude. I agree. And it's because sprawls don't work anymore. They just don't work because... And nobody really just hard sprawls because sprawls were like incorporated into mixed martial arts because they were day one wrestling. So when we were taking these guys who could kickbox and, and do arm bars, we're like, well, if someone tries to take you down, man, drive your hip into his face and fucking stop him. In wrestling, guys can't sprawl because they'll step over your leg or they'll readjust or they'll, uh, they'll try to tap the leg or they'll go to the upper body. There's so many options. Cut the corner. Yeah, yeah. Like drive further in, duck your head, like switch it up. There's just... A sprawl is step one to a cobweb of 17 other choices for a good wrestler. But when your fucking sprawl is so authoritative, and why is this authoritative? Because fuck, for 12 or 15 years, back in, in, uh, in uh, UFC 1.0, like, you know, mixed martial NHB era, these guys have been doing this one move and other, the blast double, the right hook from the southpaw stance as a right-handed guy. The, the, the hyper sprawl. All of these things he's been doing for so many years that he's become 99th percentile with them. Yet I believe you could still be an elite-level wrestler who sprawled it on guys if you sprawled every day for 10 years. But elite-level wrestlers don't do that because it doesn't really work. You'd have to work for 10 years to make that work. He's yeah. done that. So... Condit can't really introduce or doesn't have the ability to introduce that up and down as much, but the in and out he does. Outside, and the, the fun thing to look at, there's a lot of neat things, but a, a fun thing to look at is that, that uh, Lawler kind of is a bludgeoner, you know? It's like hammers and maces. Like if they were fighting on a battlefield, it's like he's got hammers and maces, smashing stuff. Condit, everything is arcing. It's all slicing weapons, knees on angles, punches over, uppercuts, everything is slicing weapons. And so in those different three dimensions is going to be interesting. Both guys also, over the last few years, right back to Hendricks one for, um, for uh, Lawler, a lot of hand fighting, trapping and elbowing, trapping and punching, trapping, grabbing, pulling and, sh and throwing shots, blocking and punching. All that in range, especially in Hen against Hendricks one. Lawler, how did he fuck up um, uh, Alves in that range? Take the hand down, 
and elbow over top. So both those guys have been playing that almost modern version of MMA, what Win Chung did back then, playing that kind of trapping hand fighting game. That shit's going to be cool. There's so much going on. Uh, they're just going to shit kick each other until one of them falls. And there are times where when you make a pick, you just pick on your favorites. And I just kind of am imagining this fight going crazy for three to four rounds and Carlos kind of winning it. But yeah. at the same time, who the fuck's going to be Robbie Lawler right now? Right. And when you talk about how, you know, Robbie Lawler is super effective with the way he parries punches, you know, obviously in that fight with Hendricks, the reason he was able to do that is because they literally stood in front of each other, except for the times when, you know, Hendricks was diving on the legs. When Hendricks was standing, you know, they were basically standing in front of each other and Robbie was able to utilize those effective uh, parry counters. But when he's fighting Condit, Condit's going to utilize serious footwork. So what Robbie needs to do is he's got to cut off that ring and not let Condit utilize that footwork that he's known for. But Condit's arsenal standing is uh, very, very damn good. And if I had to make an argument or a case for Condit winning the fight, I'd go back to what I was saying about, you know, Robbie's body might not be holding up after all those five-round wars. And if you recall the fight against Rory McDonald, you know, Rory did have him hurt, but we all know Rory doesn't have that same killer instinct that Carlos Condit does. Rory tried to finish, but if you actually look at his uh, flurry when he's trying to finish, most of the shots he was throwing weren't really landing, man. Uh, Robbie was defending himself very well. He was still yeah. in the fight. He was throwing back. Now, let me tell you this. If the natural-born killer has you hurt, this guy knows how to finish fights. Now, there was a time in his career where he had, um, I think he was 30 wins and 28 of those were via finish. <laughs> so, I mean, oh, this, this, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure if now he's got 31 wins. Uh, but bottom line, he's one of these guys where, you know, 90-something percent of his wins are via finish. He knows how to close the show. If he stumbles Robbie a little bit like some other guys in the past have, I truly believe he will close the show. But Robbie Lawler's the kind of guy you can never count out. No one thought that, you know – when he, when he came into the UFC for the second time and he fought Josh Koscheck, he was an underdog in that fight. You know, that tells you the level of confidence people had for Robbie Lawler because they recalled him at middleweight in strike force where, you know, he's falling asleep at the press conference. He couldn't give two fucks about being there. But now, you know, something, uh, some uh, sleeping giant was awoken within him and he's just fucking killing guys. But now he's actually meeting a guy that's not scared of him. I know Matt Brown wasn't scared of him or anything, but I'd say Carlos Condit's a little more technical than Matt Brown. And he also has that will to win, that heart of a lion. He's the natural born killer. It's not some cute nickname. He really is a killer. So I can see the case for Condit finishing Lawler. But at the same time, Lawler is very hard to pick against. So one thing I got to say is that if you're watching this right now, you better tune in Saturday night, 10 p.m. Eastern time, and only on pay-per-view. Fuck, man. I can't even wait for that. Like, I can't wait um, the, uh, I'm leaning towards Condit and I'm only doing that in a way that if Condit can't beat Lawler, nobody's beaten Lawler for another year or two until he's smart enough to say, I've defended my belt three or four or five times and I retire. You know what I mean? Who's going to beat him? You have to have, you have to be able to outstrike him. And I think only Condit can potentially do it. His angles are different. He strikes at different you know, from different positions within the cage. 
Uh, you, you make great points about the footwork. The footwork game is going to be, and the footwork matchup is going to be really interesting because they're, they're both the right way to beat each other. So if somebody is moving in on these, and I've been doing nothing but absorb Dillashaw and Cruz, and, uh, uh, you know, just one quick comment on that. It's like they're so different. Everybody thinks they're so similar, but they're so different. And uh, that's what I think the breakdown is going to be around. But uh, uh, the way you beat either one of those guys is with advanced fundamentals. But neither one of them plays with advanced fundamentals, so it's going to be weird. Whereas Condit can play and will play that kind of movement. And the way you beat him is with advanced fundamentals. And nobody's got better advanced fundamentals than Robbie Lawler. Condit will probably look to kind of outflank him. And uh, it's sort of like a game of that switching and that mobility is meant that in moments where you and I come in and we strike and then I step out on an angle and you step out around to face me, our whole lives, that moment has been a moment of, cool, get my hands back up, reset, think for a moment, Get back on my game. These guys like Condit and and uh, Dillashaw and Connor take away that reset moment. And you've sparred a lot, like uh, as a martial artist, you go in, so something happens, he does something, you try to counter, you move around, but back to that reset moment. They're trying to take away that reset moment and penalize you in that reset moment. Oh yeah. yeah. They, yep. they basically, you know, it takes away your weapons in a way. It's all, you know, you know who's the best at it, in my opinion? The modern day Rafael Dos Anjos. The pressure that guy puts on you, he literally takes away all your weapons and he shuts you down because. Verdum did the same thing. Verdum did the same thing against Kane. They're under the same coach, Master Rafael. And, you know, Nick Kersan, my boy who I'm going to talk to next week on yeah. Half the Battle, you know, he's behind the, um, the reason that they're able to keep that pace because, look, when he fought Pettis, you know, the first round, okay, kills him in the first round, eats, eats a Pettis head kick to the chin, keeps walking forward. We're like, oh, fuck, damn. Can you do that for four more rounds? And then he does it for four more rounds. We're like, okay. All right. That's the style it takes to beat these dynamic strikers. Yeah, it's true. Oh, man. there It's, it's getting more and more complicated now because – so the I talked to Duke the week of that fight, and – I asked him the question that would be logical if you're looking at it. You're, we're dealing with a pressure fighter. What's the answer with pressure fighters? Well, if we can get off the line, that's great. But if he's just going to keep pressuring us and moving forward and taking away our moments of offense, I mean, ball possession in football or any sport, if you have it, I'm on defense. I'm not scoring. So keep it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, Keep the ball. And that's their game, right? And uh, so I talked to Duke about it. I'm like, Duke, you know, I'm under the impression that beating the pressure fighter these days is about dishing out damage while backing up. And Duke was like, absolutely. Anthony's one of the best in the world at it. It's something we've worked heavily on. Beating the pressure fighter is, you know, the modern game right now. You know, the modern game became be the pressure fighter. So then it's like, well, if we're pressure versus pressure, you know, we're rolling dice. Both of us come forward. We swing a bunch of punches. One of us is unconscious in 13 seconds, usually the one who's not quite as slick or in the moment. And uh, so maybe there's a better way. We'll draw you in. We'll strike with you. 
And I, I've seen Anthony throw punches backing up, and there's a certain stomp that back foot has to do as you're retreating to stomp and transfer energy. And it's the stomp of the back foot drives, and the, uh, the ball of the back foot drives the right hip in and the right uppercut or whatever you're throwing with, pivot off, get him to chase you, hit him from the outside, get him to reset, draw him in, hit him off on an angle, he resets, hit him again. And Duke's like, absolutely, that is what we're doing. We're going to penalize him for being a pressure fighter. We're going to make – just didn't happen that way. Yeah. Does that mean if that if his orbital bone wasn't broken in the first round and it wouldn't have happened? Maybe. Maybe not. You know? I, like, I don't think so because, look, Pettis kicked him as hard as he could to the body and to the chin. And normally when Pettis does that to guys, you know – they start to rethink their lives. They they either go down or they start backing up. And RDA was like, look, man, you can hit me with whatever you want. As long as I'm still conscious, I'm going to cut off the ring and beat you up. You know, when you think I'm going to strike, I'm going to take you down. When you yeah. think I'm going to take you down, I'm going to punch you in the face and break your orbital bone. So, I mean, credit to RDA. That truly was, in my opinion, the best performance of 2015. Now, Robin, I wish I could sit here and talk to you for the next three hours about fights, but unfortunately – we are running out of time. We got to wrap this thing up. And, man, I want to thank you so much because I truly think this was the best episode of Half the Battle Yet. You're the man. I can't wait to have you back. And, you know, I'd like to have you back as soon as possible. But one thing I want to book right here, right now on Half the Battle, I want Robin Black on Half the Battle for UFC 200. Let's make it happen, my man. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. A hundred percent. And uh, make sure you uh, link me, and I want to hear uh, that strength and conditioning chat for sure. But, yeah, UFC 200, what should we do it, like eight or ten days before? Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll do it on, on fight week. Whenever it's uh, appropriate, we will do so. And, you know, hopefully there's – I know the UFC are going to stack these cards coming up. Ward on the street, Connor might return in March, maybe versus RDA, maybe versus Frankie. We'll have to keep our eyes peeled and see what happens, but – I will definitely have you back on the show before UFC 200, but for sure, UFC 200, Robin Black is coming back on half the battle. I am down. I am currently working on um, uh, my Dillashaw Cruise breakdown. I got to do a long day tomorrow, a, a big afternoon Saturday, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and hopefully shoot it Thursday and send it to the UFC. And then right after that, I'll probably take one day off. I'll go out and like have some beers with my friends, and then I'll be right back working on – um, uh, Verdum Kane 2. I don't know yet how to approach that one. Like, I might approach it with, hey man, let's take a look at what is uh, elevation sickness and review which of these things played into it. Or I might just say, hey, look, you got to be in shape. You got to be in shape, and in shape means in shape for the situation. If you're not, that's up to you. Let's examine what Verdum was able to do and how. Or maybe something else. I don't know. That one's going to be fun. Or maybe we just look at what makes heavyweight fights so great. Who knows? I don't know. But, uh, but uh, you know, it wasn't just Kane that was fighting in elevation. Where Doom was fighting in elevation yeah. too. And, you know, Kane's the guy that's known for the for being the cardio machine. And where Doom whooped his ass. So it is what it is. In my opinion, where Doom, you know, I think people aren't giving him the credit he deserves. They're trying to make all these excuses for Kane. But as far as I'm concerned, where Doom is the undisputed heavyweight champ. And he will remain the undisputed heavyweight champ come February. But I cannot wait to see Robin Black's breakdown of that fight because, as always, you bring it, my friend. So 
Thanks so much for joining Thanks, me on this episode. And you know, for all the fans watching, if this is your first time checking out Half the Battle, I sincerely appreciate it. You can find Half the Battle on YouTube, on iTunes. Go subscribe. Give Half the Battle a five-star review. And you can follow me on Twitter at Best Fight Picks. I'd love to talk fights with all you guys. Thank you again. Robin, if there's anything you want to plug before we head out of here, go ahead, my man. Yeah, come to hang with me on Twitter too, Robin Black MMA. Thanks, brother. It's really fun hanging out with you. We'll do it again in a month or a month and a half and, and UFC 200 for sure. Hell yeah. I cannot wait, my friend. And you have a good one, brother. You too, man. Cheers.